0: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now, here's Frank Marano.
2: There are very few issue issues that are completely universal. Some people like sports, some people don't like sports. Some people pay attention to politics, other people don't pay attention to politics. Some people own homes, other people rent. Some people live in climates where there's a lot of snow, some people live in climates where there's not very much snow at all. There is one universal truth. And the old saying used to go that the only true thing, the only guarantees in life were death and taxes. But what if you're not paying taxes? What if you make the decision to evade taxes? Or what if you live your life off the grid so that and don't earn any money that you have to pay taxes on? Or what if most of your taxes come from investment income? Well, chances are you'll have to pay the piper eventually. The point is, the only thing we all have to deal with is death. And one of the store one of the subjects that I have Most enjoyed, and I know that sounds bizarre, but it's true. One of the subjects that I have most enjoyed talking with you about is how we handle our demise. Obviously, I've said this before. I'm hoping many of you choose to handle your demise by putting me in your will. That's very sincere. Second, um, we've talked about the decline in burials over the years and the uptick in people choosing to be cremated. We've talked about how increasingly people are um, taking tattoos of dead loved ones and having them framed. We've talked about the movement towards cryogenics or cryonics. And uh, we're still working on putting together a an interview with an expert and advocate in the field of cryonics. But here's something that makes sense I don't know if it makes sense for me. It makes sense that people are doing this, but I don't remember hearing very much about this unless I heard about it. And I misremembered human composting, human composting is the hot new thing in death care. Forget traditional burial, forget cremation Most people uh, don't have the money to be cryogenically frozen, which if I had the means, that would be my preferred method. But this is now a huge new movement. Now, deciding what should be done with your remains is a very personal thing. And new options don't arise all that often because we've been dealing with dead people for, I don't know, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And we figured out kind of most of the ways that we're going to treat dead people. You bury them, you burn them, you do something else. California recently became the fifth state in the country to legalize human composting. Now, many of you may know what composting is, where you have a a little compost heap and you throw your banana peels, you throw your eggshells. You throw your coffee grinds into the compost, and you can use that to enrich a soil. Human composting is where a person's remains are turned into usable soil. And it's also been approved in Colorado, Oregon, Vermont, Washington. I mentioned California. And they are saying that New York could be next. I think this is so interesting. Uh, Recompose is a Seattle-based funeral home. They are at the forefront of the movement. Uh, The way it works is this. Upon a client's death, Recompose organizes laying-in ceremonies, similar to traditional funerals. The body is then placed in specifically designed vessel and surrounded with natural materials such as wood chips and alfalfa. By controlling the ratio of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and moisture, human composting creates the perfect environment for microbes and beneficial bacteria to thrive. These microbes are assisted by mechanical steps to help complete the transformation into soil. The process takes about a month, and it results in a cubic yard of soil. doesn't matter if you're... uh, Six foot four or five foot six, it's still about a cubic yard of soil, including the composted plant matter. Non-organic matter, such as dental implants, are sorted out and the soil is tested. The deceased's loved ones can then take the entire result or a smaller portion in an urn-like container for use in a backyard garden or a forest. And then Recompose donates unwanted soil to local forest conservation efforts. So that soil is, on the one hand, very sacred for people, just like ashes, and special to the people still living. But on the other hand, it's dirt, soil. And so to be able to return to the earth, with this is the sales pitch, in a meaningful way to the forest through conservation partners, that's what these people say is an attractive option for a lot of families. This costs $7,000, including pickup, composting, soil donation. That is generally more expensive than direct cremation, but cheaper than burial. They have composted this one company, Recompose, over 200 people so far, around 1,200 more have signed up to make monthly payments towards the final cost. I am curious, would you ever do this for yourself? 800-848-9222. It never really occurred to me until yesterday. But um, 800-848-9222. But I've given this a lot of thought just in the last few hours because mortality, as I said, is something that we all have to deal with. And I went to a, a wake on Sunday night for a friend of mine who died at 48 years old who left behind two twins, two twin boys that are exactly my son's age. And um, to see the photos in, on the photo board in the funeral parlor of these little boys that are now going to have to grow up without really getting to know their father and then looking 10 feet from where he's pictured so full of life with those boys and then looking at this lifeless body in a coffin – It really makes you think of how fragile life is and how it could all be over tomorrow. So I have been thinking about this a lot more. At this point in my life, I do not have the means to get cryogenically frozen. So uh, uh, let's take that off the table for now. I'll take that off the table. So what does that leave? That leaves um, all these other options. So the first thing I would do is donate all of my organs. Whatever organs anybody wants, they can have. Uh, I know um, people have specifically heard Curtis and others talk about the amount of alcohol that I drink. And people are specifically requesting that they don't want my liver or several of my other organs. Now, it's understandable. I was a little hurt at first, but I understand it. So then after that, I always kind of just thought I'd be buried. But I think of my own family. I very rarely visit the cemetery. I don't uh I don't spend any time visiting and talking with dead relatives of mine, even people I was very close to, as I know used to be the thing, and I used to do that as a kid, but I don't you know, i I've, I've the I'm of the belief they're not there. So what am I going to get buried for? Ashes? Eh, I don't know. There's something that just seems so ephemeral about that. Or morbid if you're going to keep an urn full of ashes in the house. But composting, to be able to plant a tree out of soil that was once my body in the backyard or something, my children, my grandchildren could go to that tree and said, we planted that tree based on dad's body or grandpa's body. I think that is a pretty interesting thing. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Uh, I'm thinking about it. I am thinking about it. Micah Truman is the CEO of this company, Return Home. He was on NBC on uh, September 19th talking about this trend towards human composting.
3: Terramation takes about 90% less energy to complete. And when we're done, we have a material, soil, that can then be used to restart the cycle of life.
2: I think it's pretty interesting. One woman, uh, Nina Schoen, who's a client of this company, so she will be composted when she's older, was attracted by the slow transition of transforming into something else, which means that a death doesn't happen overnight. And she told Axios, and to me, that helps break down the barrier we have between here one minute, gone the next, this invisibleness of death. Another draw... Is environmental concerns, you you heard Micah talk about energy there. Say, human composting saves about 1.2 metric tons of carbon compared to traditional burial or cremation. Hundreds of folks who are under the age of 49 are signing up with us, according to the Recompose folks. And they think that the common thread is the climate crisis and the state of the environment generally. See, human composting has its roots in agriculture. Um, And for farmers in places with very little topsoil, burying dead animals is not the best practice. It's not possible. So they tend to recommend that most of their landowners um, to compost their animals. And human composting might benefit from a bit of rebranding. But its proponents are glad to have an option that suits their needs better then cremation, burial, or something else. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Uh, Nina, Sh- uh, Nina Schoen said, I love this idea that it's like my time has come and now it's time for something else. Hey, uh, today, speaking of death, and we are going to get into some upbeat subjects as well, today is the 59th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And believe it or not, the government is still refusing to release many of the documents related to this assassination that are required by law to be released. So in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk with an attorney who's filed a lawsuit to force the Biden administration and the National Archives to release those documents. Why aren't they being released? I find it very, very suspicious. But we're going to talk about it with attorney Larry Schnaff in uh, just a little bit. And uh, Courtney Carter DeJesus, a former journalist who is now a children's book author. She's going to join me a little bit later. We're going to talk all about her book, Eva, the Kid Reporter. It's a children's book. And uh, I read it to my son yesterday. He enjoyed it. He did try to eat Several of the pages, so some of the story may have been lost on him. But it's a story that we're going to read again and again. Uh, but uh, she seems like a great person. But we're getting to your theories of what you think think happened with JFK. Some updates on some other stories that we've been following over the last few days and the last few weeks. So we got an action packed show uh, for over the course of the next. Three hours and uh, forty minutes, and I'm glad you're on along for the ride. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Would you go when it's time for you to pass on for human composting? I'm thinking about it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Wayne is in Hempstead. Hello, Wayne. Wayne.
4: Yes, I'm right here. Okay, Thank you, sir. what's on your mind? Okay, so yeah, uh, you know, my my primary point, and I'd like to explain it, is that. God don't need no composting. Okay, that's the main point. But let me explain what I'm talking about. So let me tell you in, in a nutshell, you probably know, or maybe you don't know the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph with his...
2: Jesus' his his father? No. no the, uh, Jesus. the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat?
4: Well, that's the name of a show. Yes. That they, yeah. But in actuality, it's a fascinating and amazing story. So, you know, Joseph was sent by his father to bring some extra supplies down to his brothers who were she, uh, sheep herding far, far from, you know, the home tents. And when, you know, they kind of hated him, you know, the story maybe be from, I don't know, I never saw a dream color, but I did read the Bible. So what happened in, in the simplicity is he got down there, they hated his guts, and they decided to throw him in a pit to die. So there's one way of getting rid of somebody. Uh, well, I know, would, but I,
2: you, well, you wouldn't want to do that for your own self, oh,
4: would you? No, that's just—it's just that's just, that's just the inkling. So what happens is, one of the brothers then has this kind of a sick, sick—you uh, know—feeling in his stomach as they're eating their dinner, while this, while their brother's dying in a pit, and they see the slave traders coming by, who are on their way to Egypt. So they say, "I got to wait, wait. Let's get them out of there and let's sell them to the slave traders." Well, let's just skip, uh, like. Forty years down the road, and the man ends up in prison. This Joseph ends up in prison. Attempted, he was he was uh, what do you call Accused of attempting to rape his master's wife, who was a general, general po- uh, one of the generals of the pharaoh, and and his wife really had the hearts for this young Joseph, and he refused to uh, go to bed with this wife, so he ended up in prison for like 20 years down there in Egypt, but he became like a very, you know, like a top, what do you call it? Top rated, uh, top rated prisoner. And P.S. He also had the ability to interpret dreams. And in the end we get Joseph who becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, gets them through seven years of plenty where they save up all of the, all of the grains, and seven years of, of famine where it ends up, that his own father, who doesn't know he's alive because they brought back the coat with blood on it and said, mm-hmm. look, the animals killed him. His father sends the brothers down to Egypt, except for his actual blood The brother, story is now actually longer than the entire
2: Bible. The is story is now longer than both like the Old the Testament they got and the New up. Testament he's combined.
4: The prime minister of Egypt, they come and they're sent to trade whatever they have for some grain because otherwise they're going to die and then they would go back to Israel. Well, Joseph recognizes his brother. And so I'm going to end this because I'll leave it to you to read this in the book of Genesis. But what I want to get to is in the end Joseph's bones are bro- in fact Joseph and his family his entire family comes down including his father Jacob. Right. His father but- dies in Egypt and they 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 actually get permission from the pharaoh to go all the way back to Israel to bury Joseph uh, to bury Jacob's bones. Right. Wait. And and this is the same. So what I'm getting to you is, you see, God don't care about burning ashes. He's not interested right. in that. Right. Wait. A couple of things. Wayne. Couple and bury things. the body. Bury the.
2: Body. Uh, oh, so you say? Okay. So you're saying people should go consider burial as their option. That is God's preference. Um, All right. Well, so, um, okay. Thank you. There you go. Um, That's uh, that. that. Well, one, I don't pretend to know what God wants about anything, okay? Uh, But clearly Wayne is on a a much firmer religious footing than I am, and uh, he's pretty well aware of what God would like, and he says it's burial. The bottom line is burial is expensive for a lot of people. A lot of people can't afford it. That's one of the reasons we're seeing this movement go towards cremation. Here is a, I think, a very good middle ground between cremation and burial, and I find it absolutely intriguing. Curious what you think. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Matt, did you did you tell us you wanted to be cremated? Was that your deal?
5: I I don't. I haven't really thought much about it. I probably you better end start up, thinking. Apparently, I'll probably. St- end up being buried my dad did not want to be buried he requested to be cremated a few months before he died and then it's just the composting thing brought it up because he said to me i don't want to be buried i want to be cremated and then after that i don't care what you do with me he goes smoke me up he put me in a pipe and smoke me he goes or sprinkle me on your lawn and okay, he did say well, that, so I was like, "No, that's okay. nice. That's right. nice." You know,
2: I, I mean, I, I, kind of, I appreciate that attitude. In that, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it was like, "I'm dead. I right. don't care what you I, exactly. do." Exactly. I, I totally get that. I totally get uh, get that uh, mentality. But um, I don't know. I, I'd like to one be considerate of my own finances and the finances of my heirs. And uh, two, you know, I like the idea of human composting because there's a tree or something. There's something tangible that you can still look to. Well, which is, I-, I think, a lot of the appeal of having the urn in the house or having a headstone that you're buried in. But I, I don't know. Um, I think this. Uh, I think this is an interesting option, and I'm curious to see where it goes. Loretta is in Brookline. Hello, Loretta.
6: Hi. Uh- Good morning, uh, Frank. Um, I'm of the opinion that funerals are for the living. The deceased doesn't need a funeral. Sure. And um, if you have it straight, no matter what your age is, if you have it straight with your family, what your wishes are, and they're all good with it, then you make it legal, you put it in your living will, your health care proxy, so that everything is carried out. If you can't speak for yourself... I'm 77. I see the merit of what you're talking about. Uh, it is useful if your family's down with that, if, if it's acceptable to everybody and they're comfortable with it. But you're not giving your sons, your grandchildren a funeral.
2: No, unless... no, you could still have the funeral and then okay. uh, just do, uh, just have your body be composted after that.
6: Oh, okay. Um, uh, I think it's more useful to me. Yes, donate my organs, take my skin for burn victims, my eyes, any needed parts of the eye bank, anything that you can use so that uh, people can be helped. But uh, the rest that's left, the shell, I want to donate it to the, um, to the med students for research because um, they need to learn. When you're in the hospital a few times, as I've been, You find out exactly what they don't know, and they don't know a lot. They need to learn. They need to keep learning. And if I want to benefit people that I'm leaving behind, whether I know them or not, that's what I'm down with. But I know that's not for everybody.
2: No, I think that's great. I mean, I'd like to do something similar. Um, usually, I feel like there's something left even after they take the the skin and the organs. Um, and I, I feel like maybe composting or burial is a is a way to uh, is a way to remember that kind of a thing. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed.
1: Yeah, I would just uh, do what the mafia does: feed them to the fishes. It's it's totally free. All right,
2: so that's what your plan is. All right. Well, any specific fish?
1: Well, uh, bluefish will probably. They have teeth. They're pretty. Uh, you know, doesn't matter. You'll just your body will decay at the bottom of the ocean.
2: All right, and so you've gone over this with your family.
1: No, I just thought about it five minutes ago when you started talking
2: about it. Well, I'm glad we could uh, help you out. Thank you, Ed. 800-848-9222. We're going to... Speaking of the mob, one of the theories involved in the uh, John F. Kennedy assassination has to do that... believes that the mob may have played a role in his assassination. I am becoming less and less of that belief. I have to tell you. You know why? And we'll get into this a little bit later. But... I've known a lot of gangsters over the years, and even old school guys, even old school guys, new school guys, guys that have been violent, guys that have not been violent. You know what the one thing they all have in common? They all can't stop talking. They all, even the guys that brag about how they're so discreet and they don't tell tales out of school, they all tell tales out of school. And these guys, I don't think could keep a secret about anything. And uh, I think you would have seen, well, we'll get into it a little bit later, my theory as to what happened. But what's more concerning now is the fight that the government is putting up to not reveal these documents related to the Kennedy assassination 30 years after a law was passed saying that they needed to. Let me squeeze in one more call, more call on uh, human composting. Russell is in North Carolina. Hello, Russell.
7: Hey, Frank. Hey, you know, I was listening tonight and hearing what you're saying. And, um, you know, my mother, God rest her soul, she passed away a uh, little over four years ago. And we actually had this discussion. Hmm. And it was like, you know, there's five sons. And three of us voted right off the bat. No way. We're totally against cremation. And uh, because you know you're supposed, to, the body's supposed to return to the earth, and um, it was like, I mean, there was no, there was no, and I get people. You know. But what
2: about human composting?
7: Well, having grown up in Vermont, <laughs> where it's actually a big thing, um, I mean, you do what you want to do. I mean, because Thank you know, you. I, I don't force my beliefs on other people. You know, I don't say, "Oh, you can't do that." You can, not yeah, That's cool. If you want to do that, that's fine. But we we were very strongly against that. But
2: so you yeah. considered cremation, composting, and burial?
7: No, we we never considered any of it. We considered burial, and that was it. Got it. Okay.
2: All right. Thank you, Russell. So based on our, yeah. All right. Thank you. Hey, uh, we'll continue the discussion a little bit later if people want to comment. Mm-hmm. Meantime, going to talk with Larry Schnopf in just a bit. He is an attorney who is doing, I think, a tremendous service to the public. By uh, fighting to bring some daylight to some govern some documents that the government has that they don't want unearthed. Why don't they? We're going to explore it straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour.
2: I don't think there is a conspiracy that has more... Captivated the attention and the imagination of conspiracy theorists over the course of the last 59 years than the question of who shot John F. Kennedy. Did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? Was there a second shooter? Was it the mob? Was it the CIA? Was it the Soviet Union? Was it Cuba? Was it Woody Harrelson's father? Was it Ted Cruz's father? Was it aliens? Was it aliens working with the mob, Woody Harrelson's father, Ted Cruz's father, uh, the CIA and the Soviet Union? And there seems to be a lot of different theories out there about what occurred. But... The one thing that is undeniable is that the government is doing whatever it can to stop (laughs) a lot of documents from being unearthed. Fifty nine years ago, rifle shots rang out in Dealey Plaza, leaving President Kennedy mortally wounded. And here we are in the year 2022, and there are still more than 14,000 Classified documents related to the president's murder locked away in part or in full at the National Archives in clear violation of the spirit of a law that was passed 30 years ago calling for the release of these documents. Now, remember what was going on 30 years ago. You had the Oliver Stone film JFK with Kevin Costner as the New Orleans district attorney, Jim Garrison, and a whole new renewed interest. This renewed my interest in it, as a matter of fact. You had a whole renewed interest in the Kennedy assassination and a lot of people calling on the government to release these documents, release these documents, in spite of whatever factual problems there were with that film. And they passed this law in reaction to the public outcry. And there's supposed to be documents released by this period, by that period. Why are there still 14,000 classified documents locked away? One person who never really believed that the government was going to release these documents was Kermit Hall. He served from 1994 to 1998 on the Assassination Records Review Board which reviews and releases to the public documents related to the assassination of President Kennedy. Here are some remarks that he made in 1998.
8: While the board is going away today, its work continues. The echo of our efforts will be heard literally for uh, the next decade or longer. But it also depends, since uh, some of these documents have been postponed in their release until uh, the year 2017 and in some cases earlier, it depends on all of us uh, to keep the people who are in the agencies uh, feet to the fire so that uh, when those dates come uh, for documents to be opened that uh, they don't shirk uh, their legal and constitutional responsibility and really the moral responsibility that's entailed in our act actions in making sure that the American public has the opportunity to come to terms with the issue of whether or not its own government participated in the murder of the president of the United States uh, back, in, uh, back in the early 1960s.
2: Well, much like his namesake famous frog, Kermit was absolutely prophetic. Today's leaders have shirked their legal constitutional legal constitutional and moral responsibilities to release these documents one gentleman who is doing whatever he can to get the government to live up to the bargain that it made with the public is larry schnaff he is an attorney who is uh, leading a lawsuit to force the government to comply with this 1992 law and release these documents. Kind enough to join us this morning. Larry, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio.
3: Thanks, Frank. And you've done your research.
2: Hey, I try. I, I've, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I can't compete with what you've done. And uh, you're doing, I think, a public service for everybody. Tell me about your story, Larry. Obviously, uh, you have a, a pretty diverse legal career and you could get involved in any number of causes, any number of cases. Why did you choose to pick this one? Why file the lawsuit over these records being released?
3: Well,. The, uh, the Congress said 30 years ago that 30 years was enough, and they want an expeditious review uh, release of the records. And they gave till October 26, 2017, to release the rest of the records. The records that were not released when the Assassinations uh, Records Review Board went out of business in 1998 were held back on the grounds that they posed an identifiable risk uh, to national security and, um, And they were to be – they figured another 25 years would be enough time to then release them. Well, in uh, 2017, in uh, October 2017, President Trump postponed the release of the records for six more months. And then in 2018, he then further released – postponed the release for another three and a half years. Now, I have a separate lawsuit that was filed against the National Archives – and while I was seeking the underlying correspondence um, in those decisions to postpone the records, and what mm. the American people don't know, the public record is that the National Archives recommended to the President both of the postponements and said both postponements comply with the law. but the records I have received shows that the National Archives actually objected to the grounds for postponement that were being asserted by the CIA and the FBI the FBI um, has about 7,400 records they're holding back, and 6,000 of them involve the mafia.
2: So it has nothing to – the National Archives is not the villain of our story here. No. It's the no. CIA and the FBI.
3: No. And they don't have the same power that the Assassinations Review Board had. The Assassinations Review Board had the ability to overrule the agencies, and then the only option they had was to go up to President Clinton at the time and ask for him to overrule the agencies uh, – the, the ARB – The National Archives now, what they can do is they can like push back, but at the end of the day, uh, they can't overrule. And so, actually, what's going on right now as we're talking, uh, according to President Biden, so last year, President Biden further postponed the release of the records on the grounds of the pandemic. <laughs> uh,
2: th- that was crazy. We talked about that at the time. So as it stands now, what is the status of the lawsuit or lawsuits to, one, uh, get the records and, two, get the correspondence related to the records?
3: So the lawsuit against the president and the National Archives was filed in the Northern District of California. Uh, it was filed on behalf of the Mary Farrell Foundation, which has a it's an educational um, uh, nonprofit that has probably the most viewed uh, inventory uh, on the assassination by you know historians. It's, it's like the first place everyone goes. They go there before they go to the National Archives. Um, so that we filed our complaint, the government has to file an answer. Uh, they'll probably file it sometime after the first of the year. We have a status conference scheduled for January, and then uh, we'll find out what the schedule is for further actions. My lawsuit against the uh, the National Archives from last year, the government settled the case almost immediately, and they've been giving me do- document dumps every month. Wow.
2: Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, that uh, shows, uh, I guess, you're uh, you're on the right track in terms of winning these lawsuits. Now, uh, I guess the more interesting part for a lot of people is... By the way,
3: Frank, uh, mm-hmm. it's not just the agencies that are holding back records. The Kennedy family is as well. The Robert Kennedy, when he right after the president was killed, he went into the Oval Office office and grabbed all these records, and absconded with them, and they have been kept all these years. Wow. Uh, they have not yet been released to the to the National Archives. Um, and in fact, uh, the Ar- the ARB was negotiating with the Robert F. Uh, Kennedy Trust Family Trust to release the records, at the time they went out of business. And not only are those records not been given to the National Archives, but there were several outstanding records requests made by the, by the ARB when they went out of business, and I think that's what probably Kermit was talking about as well. Mm. NARA has never, National Archives, no one has pursued those outstanding uh, record searches that the ARB requested. I have also requested that the House Oversight Committee conduct oversight on the fair of the executive branch to comply with the law. Um, I think now that we have a change in, in, in Congress, we might have a better chance to get a hearing. The Democrats were not too willing to hold a hearing in the fall because it would potentially embarrass the president.
2: Interesting. Interesting. OK, um, let's talk about what these documents, obviously with 14,000 documents potentially, I imagine it covers a lot of ground. But what are some of these documents that the government is refusing to release either in part or or wholly?
3: Well, there are ones that we know, so are no knowns, and then there's a bunch of unknowns mm-hmm. because the collection is a mess. But we know there are records um, about Mexico City when Oswald allegedly went to Mexico City uh, in September of 1963 and allegedly was in contact with a KGB agent in the Russian embassy and allegedly went to uh, the Mexican embassy as well. Um, Jeff Morley, who is one of my colleagues on this lawsuit, believes that there are the records the CIA is holding back um, could show some the fact that the CIA may have had, had an operational interest in Lee Oswald before the assassination, and certainly knew about him much you know more than what they have uh, admitted. Um, there are some records also about this guy Joe Manides who ran, who was in charge of the Cuban exile DRE group. Uh, they were they were being subsidized by the CIA and they ran lots of operations out of New Orleans, and the CIA has absolutely refused to to turn those over. They claimed they weren't assassination records. So um, part of our lawsuit is not only an order asking the government to turn over these documents, but we're also asking the court to order those records to be called assassination records. We're also asking the court um, to order some tapes that were made of Carlos Marcello when he was in jail in the Camtex uh, sting operation, where he allegedly uh, confessed to planning the assassination. So those have been sealed, and we're trying to. We're, our order is also trying to get those released. Now like I said the FBI has about six thousand mafia documents. The CIA has, you know, their documents that are intelligence related, and you know what possible grounds? Here's an example of a stupid situation. Um, last last December some documents were released and one of them was a CIA document about Oswald in Japan. There was nothing in the memo that we did not already know but the reason it was being withheld all these years was because the information was gathered by our listening station in Australia and in the 1960s the Australian government had asked us not to let it be known that we had a CIA listening station on their soil. So in 2017 the CIA requests these documents to be postponed, and President Trump granted it. Now, at the same time that the CIA is requesting this postponement, there's a TV show, popular TV show, in Australia called Pine Gap, which is what about? It's about a listening station in this, in, in hmm. Australia.
2: Hmm. Um, so as far as the why these agencies, and we can have a a separate discussion about the Kennedy family, but the CIA, the FBI, why do you think – do you think it's a reflection of – not wanting things like that listening station to be publicly revealed? Is it a reflection of the fact that Oswald was on their radar screen and they don't want to be exposed for the malfeasance of the people that were running the agency in 1963? Maybe there's a question of uh, criminal negligence there. Why do you think these agencies are working so hard to keep so many documents from the public? Yeah, I
3: think that's all of those. I think they, they feel that uh, – now, I, I think there, there probably are some documents that are genuinely um, – like we may have made promises to – let's say there may have been people that worked for the Mexican government who were working for us as well. And so we may have learned stuff about Oswald through these people, and they may have made promises to those people that their names will never be revealed and so i could see the agency now if those people are still alive or uh, if their family members are still alive and there's a potential they have to make a finding of, of identifiable harm then maybe that might be a grounds for um you know postponement but aside from something like that you know uh, the, i would be the idea that somehow uh, the way we collect information now and the way we collect information fifty nine years ago is the same would be quite an embarrassment.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, that, I, I certainly hope that's not the case. Yeah, and uh,
3: embarrassment is specifically not a grounds in the statute for failing to disclose a record. So I think you're right. It's 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 embarrassment. It's revealing names. Um, and I think the mafia is a little more complicated because there's for different reasons. But uh, I think that's and the problem is that they don't tell. See, the president when he post when Trump postponed the records and when Biden postponed the records. They were supposed to give a document-by-document explanation in a non-classified way explaining to the American people why this particular document, why the identifiable harm outweighed the strong public interest in the information. And they never did that. Both President Trump and President Biden just made this sweeping assertion that all 15,000 records pose in them an instantial endangerment. So we're saying that they did not comply with the law because they did not make that document by document, and it's based on clear and convincing evidence, which is like a criminal standard. Right. The obligation right. is on the agency to establish that there's this identifiable harm. That outweighs the public interest.
2: Yeah, the the one that surprised me the most was the decision by President Trump, because Trump's whole life in the public has been about, uh, I don't know, uh, poking the, the bear in terms of many of these different conspiracy theories. And uh, he didn't really seem to be somebody that respected a lot of the institutional sacred cows. So to think that he would. Um, continue this tradition of uh, the uh, the intelligence community who he has had no problem being qu- quite critical of, this wall of silence that they want to put up before the public. That, that's what really surprised me. I mean, Biden's been in Washington most of his life. He's an institutional guy. I'm not surprised that he would go along with what these bureaucrats and what these agencies wanted. The Trump uh, decision really did surprise me. Do you have a theory as to why Trump went along with that?
3: Yes, and in fact, I had the same reaction you did because two days before the deadline, President Trump said he was going to release the rest of the records. Now, what my lawsuit against the National Archives for the underlying correspondence shows was that in both uh, starting in July of 2017 and March of 2018, there were drafts circulating between amongst the National Security Council of uh, the NARA, the agencies about postponing records. And so like the, ver- the, bo- the versions of the, me- of the memos of the archivist, the public ar- document from the archivist recommending to the president to postpone the records for another three and a half years was version 13. So what I, fa- what I realized was that the president do- didn't know what was going on. He was going to release them, and then he was told by his National Security Council people, "No, we're not releasing them."
9: That's so, that's I mean, wild, it's
3: amazing. Yeah, I mean there, you can see. I mean, there's 13 versions of a, of a memo going on while the president is saying this. So they just you know they, they just put them in a box.
2: Do you have a theory? And if people are just in, we're talking with Larry Schnapp, uh, Larry. By the way, if people are interested in learning more about your lawsuit, what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's the best place for them to do that?
3: We have a – Mary Farrell Foundation um, has a a page devoted to the website, so that's probably the best place. We have the articles that have been published since the website was – I mean, since the lawsuit was filed, and we have the complaint there. Um, So that's probably the best place to go. Um, It's – I think it's MFF.org, but just type in Mary Farrell, and it's F-E-R-R-E-L-L, Foundation.
2: And uh, as and if people are curious as to not what the agencies are trying to hide, because it seems like the CIA and the FBI are always trying to hide something from the public, what about the Kennedy family? I would think the people most interested in getting to the truth about what happened— would be the descendants and the relatives of John F. Kennedy. Why are they working so hard to keep some of these documents from going public?
3: So here's my theory. It's not a popular theory amongst my fellow people, uh, JFK researchers, because I'm essentially right of center, and most of my people that you know are in the JFK community uh, worshiped John Kennedy, and they felt that he was killed because of these novel, these noble policy differences with the. Uh, with the intelligence apparatus in the country, um, my theory, uh, and again, this is just me. We know for a fact that Joe Kennedy, the father of Robert and 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 John, had two mafia contracts out on him uh, because he was violating the rules in the 40s and early 50s for transporting booze. And he went to call us. He went to Sam Giacana and begged him to uh to to remove to terminate the contract and giacana said why should i help you why don't you talk to the guy directly says, i can't because my boy's going to run for president i just can't be seen talking to these people which of course pissed off giacana but g but and he says look if you do this for me you're going to have a friend in the white house and so we all heard stories about you know giacana helping chicago win chicago for kennedy but um This promise is made, and then what happens, as soon as they get into office, uh, Joseph Kennedy tells John to put Robert in charge of the, you know, attorney general in charge of the Department of Justice, and he goes after the mafia. Mm -hmm. One of the Mm -hmm. first things he does is deports Carlos Marcelo and drops him off. The guy's going to his immigration office uh, meeting, gets picked up at the airport, is dumped in the middle of the Guatemala jungle. (laughs) And um, so I think... I would say John Kennedy died a dishonorable death. I think the family is trying to hide the fact. Let, let's let's think about 1964. At that time, nobody knew uh, that we were co- we were coordinating with the Mafia to try to kill Castro, um, and so and that jo- Bobby Kennedy was leading that effort. And I think that if and no one knew about um, John Kennedy's womanizing, all the other things are going on. So if that information had come out, if you start if you start doing a true investigation, and Oswald, for example, Oswald's uncle worked for Carlos Marcello as a bookie. Um, and so there's lots, and and Ruby was clearly uh, mobbed up, despite mm-hmm. what what the Warren Commission said. And if you start if you start sniffing around, here's the other interesting thing: Frank Costello used to fix races for for Hoover. And they knew, so whenever I I advanced the theory that it was the mafia that killed the president, i say, well, the mafia couldn't control uh, the investigation. Ah, They didn't have to because they knew Hoover was not going to do anything. Hoover did not assign his best people to the investigation. He didn't assign his Cuba experts. He didn't assign his Soviet experts. He didn't assign his mafia experts. He assigned his bank inspectors. You know, and, and, and when they started sniffing around New Orleans, suddenly he declared that the investigation mm. is
2: Hey, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, okay. We're going to take calls from some folks on this throughout the program. Really an interesting discussion. I'm wishing you the best of luck with this lawsuit. If you could keep me posted on this, I will. I, I, I'd appreciate it. And we'd definitely love to have you back whenever there's developments, whether it's in January, before or after. I appreciate it very well, much, next, Larry Schnapp. Uh,
3: Frank, is December 15th. That's D- when the, uh, there's going to be – we know there are going to be some records released on December 15th. but
2: well, Let's talk then, and uh, you can help us analyze them, Larry. Okay, great. Thank okay, you very you much. Larry, Larry Schnapp, if you want to uh, talk about anything we just covered, you can. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: sinatra he you know during the 1960 campaign uh frank sinatra did a version of this song uh changing the lyrics to benefit jack kennedy and jack kennedy's candidacy and a lot of people said that that uh, really helped kennedy appeal to a lot of uh, people that uh, sinatra was popular with so uh you never know all right a uh, couple of quick things 800-848-9222. We're going to continue your calls next hour on what you think happened and why. Um, I know a lot of you wrote to me, <laughs> interestingly enough, and we're going to go through your mail a little bit later. If you uh, want to send an email, you can. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. A lot of you wrote to me inquiring about my shaving situation. Well, here's what happened. So finally, one, I, I, if you missed yesterday's program, i the razor that I usually use, which is designed to uh minimize razor bumps it's called the bump fighter. I can't find anywhere so I ordered something else which has very high reviews It's called a bevel razor, and I ordered that and it it finally came yesterday. I can't tell you how excited I was to finally shave yesterday. Did you ever see teen wolf when um You know, he's becoming a werewolf and he tries to shave even after he's become a werewolf. That's the way I I was excited to run to shave. So anyway, I uh, was kind of pressed for time and it was just one of those days. It feels like they're all one of those days and where there was just so much going on. And uh, my wife had to run some errands. So I was home with Carmine. So that delayed me being able to work on the show that delayed My being able to get anything done in any other aspect of my life. And so it delayed everything. And so we finally put Carmine to bed. I wasn't able to do my 10 miles on the bike. I only had time to do three. And I'm rushing. I'm rushing in the shower. And I'm also anxious because I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, thinking about tonight's show. I'm thinking about everything I have to do for Thanksgiving. I'm thinking about everything I have to do for. Carmine's birthday party, everything I have to get done for New Year's Eve Eve. Uh, I can tell my wife's annoyed with me because uh, she feels I'm not pitching in with household chores enough. So I'm rushing and I'm, I'm like distracted. And so I try this new razor, which I thought initially worked out pretty well. It was smooth, and I hope it still doesn't lead to razor bumps. But um, it gives, oh, it's a close shave, which I like, but usually a close shave is bad for razor bumps. This apparently won't be. But maybe because I was rushing in the shower, I chopped up my face like you wouldn't believe. So I, I'm ble- I was bleeding like crazy. I came to work with four bandages on my face, adhesive bandages, which I just ripped off. Until next hour, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now... Here's Frank Marato.
2: 59 years ago today... America lost its innocence, at least what it believed was its innocence, when a young, fairly popular president, although a pretty polarizing one in some circles, was murdered. And since then, there has been a great deal of discussion, wonderment about what happened. Even at the time, so obviously I think a lot of you know, What occurred? The Warren Commission came out with their investigation, came out with their report. Gerald Ford was a member of the Warren Commission. The lawyer for the Warren Commission was Arlen Specter. He came out as the attorney for the Warren Commission. He came up with what they call the single bullet theory. And pretty much from the time the Warren Commission released its documents uh, saying that Oswald acted alone, the public didn't buy it. Since then. In the last 59 years, they have, there have been estimated between 1,000 and 2,000 books written about the assassination of President Kennedy. Think about that. Can you think of any other subject over the last 59 years that there's been 2,000 books written about? And of those, 95% of those books are pro conspiracy and anti war commission, so there's a lot of fodder out there, and there's a whole bunch of different theories as to what happened um, What do you think happened 800-848-9222, that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two couple of things uh let me first state that I have no idea what happened i don't have an operating theory, however, I do believe. That it was a conspiracy. I think if you look at the work, not of the Warren Commission, but of the Congressional Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s, which investigated the assassination of both John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the Congressional Committee, which was, I think, much more thorough in its work than the Warren Commission, they weren't rushing to reach a predetermined outcome. The Congressional Select Committee on Assassinations, they determined that there were more than three bullets fired and that there was a conspiracy. And that was primarily based on the acoustics. But um, what do you think happened and why? If you have a rationale as to why, rather than just a hunch, I'd love to hear it. 800 The official story, of course, from the Warren Commission, not from the Congressional Committee is that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Marina Oswald, his widow, who I believe is still alive, she did an interview, I guess, about 20 years ago. And she does very few interviews and has done very few interviews over the course of the last 59 years. And she basically said she doesn't buy it. She does not think... He fired, she fired, her husband at the time fired the shot that killed Kennedy.
9: Well, he definitely did not fire uh, the shots
2: according to all the evidence that I have right now. So she says, according to the evidence she has, her husband didn't do it. One of the main theories surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy has had to do with who benefited, right? Who became president. After the Kennedy assassination, Lyndon Johnson. And obviously the relationship between John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson wasn't exactly George Bush and Dick Cheney, right? These guys were bitter rivals. These guys did not get along. Uh, Shortly after the assassination, um, Robert Kennedy became a bitter rival with Lyndon Johnson. He did not have much of a relationship with the Kennedy family. And one of the people who has been one of the prime advocates of the Lyndon Johnson was involved in the in killing Kennedy theory has been Roger Stone. Roger Stone, who's a political operative, very close to Donald Trump. He has been on this program many times talking about this. And I've spoken with him privately for many years. He published a New York Times bestselling book about this. You know, you've heard me introduce Roger when he's been on the show as a New York Times bestselling author. This is the book that he's a best-selling author for. And uh, his book, it's called, I believe, LBJ, The Man Who Killed JFK. And he pins all of this on Lyndon Johnson. Here's Roger Stone explaining why.
11: I, I say Giancana. You say LBJ. Why
1: LBG? Well, this, no, no, it's, it's the same thing. It's because the mob it has a, a great motive here. Uh, Ambassador Joe Kennedy has made a deal with the Chicago mob. That exactly. Is, Jack is elected, but the new attorney general will lay off Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante. The Eisenhower administration is trying to deport both of them aggressively. Hmm. They want the heat turned off. They give Joe Kennedy a, a, a million dollars. Bobby becomes attorney general and and goes immediately after both of them. They go to K- Joe Kennedy. They have a secret meeting, and they say, you son of a bitch, f- we made a deal. And he said, well, now I'm changing the deal. Wow. Now I want half the Calneva.
2: And uh, anyway, basically, that's the gist of it. He thinks Lyndon Johnson was in league with the mob in order to get this done. And you remember what happened to Lee Harvey Oswald, right? He never got a trial. A lot, And I think that's one of the reasons so many of these conspiracy theories have festered. Is because, and that audio, by the way, was courtesy of the uh, Joe Piscopo show. A lot of these conspiracy theories have festered is because they were never really properly aired out in a courtroom. Why didn't he get a trial? Well, obviously, most of you know Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered himself by Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was asked about what occurred and Jack Ruby, this is a little difficult to hear, but you're about to hear audio of Jack Ruby and listen to what he says about why this occurred, the assassination of of President Kennedy. And again, I believe this happened either the day of or the day after Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: About he was vice assassination
2: of Kennedy. So I'm going to play this for you again. But basically what he said was, if Adley Stevenson were vice president, there never would have been an assassination of John F. Kennedy. The, he's asked a question, which I don't know. I can't make it out what, what the question is. But then Jack Ruby says... The answer is the man in office. Now, let me hear that one more time.
11: Mention about vice president. There has never assassination of that president. Well, the answer is the man in office now. So you have the
2: LBJ theory and the mob theory. You have the mob in league with LBJ theory. Cuba is central to an enormous number of conspiracy theories. One theory is that the Cuban government was responsible. That gathered steam after the Senate Select Committee to study um, this stuff, the Church Committee, revealed that the CIA had made several attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro. By the way, let me just interject here. That's one reason it's not a good idea to assassinate other world leaders because you know what happens. They try to assassinate our world leaders. So in the guy that was fervent in denying this, among others, for what it's worth, was Fidel Castro. Castro said absolutely not, did not happen. And one of the leading Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorists is Jesse Ventura. I have spoken with the former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, about this many, many times over the years, from all sorts of different angles. I've read books that he's written about this. He is quite a student of this assassination and he when he was governor went to Cuba and he met with Fidel Castro and he asked Castro about the Kennedy assassination I believe this is uh, an interview that I did with Jesse Ventura about 10 or 11 years ago my memory's a little hazy as to when and and where but uh, I believe he describes this meeting with Castro
12: the I mean you know, uh, the, the quickest example, they held a special session when it became known that Oswald had an FBI informant number and was actually be a paid FBI informant. Mm. A Houston paper came out of that. The Warren Commission held a special session, and you'd think it would be to investigate whether it was true or not. No. When the minutes came out of the special session, which it took Harold Weisberg over 20 years to get because they hid them, uh, the special session was all about how to cover it up, and not let the public know it was true.
2: So do we know, uh, based on your research, and I know you've written entire books on this, who was responsible for the case Well, it's session.
12: difficult to say two, two conspiracies took place that day. And first of all, let me state this. England did a study and found that conspiracy theorists are generally more intelligent.
2: Oh, I wouldn't have that.
12: Well, but yet we're knocked and we're ridiculed and we're told we're crazy. No, it's because we don't take things at face value. We investigate. We read. We find out things on our own and draw our own conclusions, and I guess that makes us dangerous because we don't go along to get along.
2: And um, you talk about the conspiracy for a cover-up and the conspiracy for the assassination itself. Yeah, well,
12: there's a conspiracy of there were two the actual conspiracy to kill Kennedy and then there was a second conspiracy to cover it all up
13: mm-hmm.
12: and and in the second one Hoover and Johnson were absolutely involved in the second one if
2: not the first one too so uh, we, we didn't talk about Castro there but you could hear at least in Jesse Ventura's Thinking And I liked what he did there in terms of breaking down this into two separate conspiracies, the conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy and then the conspiracy to cover it up. But in both of those, in his view, Castro and Cuba did not play a role. So in a subsequent interview with Jesse Ventura, I asked him about his meeting with Castro. But the one thing that I'm hoping that you can you can briefly discuss is something you've written about before, which is your meeting with Fidel Castro in Cuba about the Kennedy assassination. What did he tell you about it?
12: Well, first of all, it wasn't about that. I I, was sit, I had one hour with Fidel Castro while I was elected governor. I think I'm the only elected official that's ever sat down with him. I found him engaging as hell, and I enjoyed the hour immensely with him. And uh, uh, we were about 40 minutes in, and we, of course we were talking what I was there for—medicine and, and trade and, and agriculture—and you know, Castro, of course, was very proud of his country, selling me on the fact that they have the most doctors of any, you know, uh, Latin country in in the hemisphere. This and that. And I, I wore a watch then; I don't anymore. But I glanced at my watch, and it was 20 minutes before the hour was up. And Fredell was so perceptive. Immediately, he said, "I'm sorry. Am I keeping you from something?" <laughs> and- I realized he, he caught me, but I, there was no bad intent, so I was honest. I said, well, no. I called him Mr. President as his title. I said, no, Mr. President, but you only gave me an hour. And I said, I, only, I, I looked because I only have 20 minutes left, and I was wondering if I could ask you something personal. And he looked at me and said, ask me anything you want. And so I went into this scenario that I was 12 years old when Kennedy was killed and that I've studied it for 20 years and I don't necessarily believe the official story of my government, but in many of the stories, his name figures prominently. And I said, I just like your perception of what happened that day. I couldn't shut him up. It was great. You know, first thing he said was it was an inside job. Uh, he said Oswald couldn't make the shots. You know that as well as I do, and I proved that on my TV show. And uh, and uh, he said to me, "If I do, I look suicidal." He said, "If I killed Kennedy, my country of Cuba, which I love, would have been wiped off of the earth."
2: So I thought that was interesting, hearing it from uh, Ventura's perspective about Fidel Castro. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to offer your two cents about what you think happened. One of the most developed theories was pushed by Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans who subsequently became a judge. And he alleged, Garrison, that anti-Castro and anti-communist elements within the CIA were behind a conspiracy that involved Oswald and a whole bunch of rabid anti-communists, Clay Shaw The private detective and former FBI agent Guy Bannister, David Ferry, Uh, this is all depicted in the film JFK, which has a lot of factual problems. Honestly, if you watch that film, it's an interesting film. I love it. I think it's really well made, and I love that it got people thinking and asking questions about this. But there are a lot of uh, uh, artistic licenses taken, and there's just a lot of things in there that just aren't true. There's a lot of things that are put in there. doesn't mean it's not worth watching. I think it certainly is. But Garrison wrote a book about his uh, situation on 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 the Trail of the Assassins, My Investigation and the Murder of President Kennedy, and that was the basis for the Oliver Stone movie, starring Kevin Costner as New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. I have here
8: some $8,000 in these letters sent, sent to my office from all over the country. Quarters, dimes, dollar bills from housewives, plumbers, car salesmen, teachers, invalids. These are people who cannot afford to send money but do. These are the ones who drive the cabs who nurse in the hospitals, who see their kids go to Vietnam. Why? Because they care. Because they want to know the truth. Because they want the country back. Because it still belongs to us. As long as the people have the guts to fight for what they believe in. The truth is the most important value we have. Because if the truth does not endure if the government murders truth, if, it, if we cannot respect the hearts of these people, then this is not the country in which I was born in, and it's certainly not the country that I want to die in.
2: So I thought that was a an interesting film, and I applaud him for bringing the only, um, you know, the only prosecution regarding the Kennedy assassination to date. You know, someone else who was uh, involved in the garrison aspect of things a little bit, but kind of on the outskirts was Larry King. You know, when you ever want to see one of the greatest mugshots of all time, you need to look at Larry King. Yes. The talk show host and the radio guy, the TV commentator, Larry King's mugshot from his arrest in 1971. See, Larry King was friendly with a fellow named uh, Lewis Wolfson. And Wolfson was a boxer and a college football player. He was a millionaire by the age of 28 and America's first corporate raider. And after financing the Babe Ruth story and making some money and getting involved in Hollywood, Wolfson began hobnobbing with Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe, romancing Hollywood actresses like Debbie Reynolds, Hedy Lamarr, and... He had a relationship with Larry King, and Larry King was always – he He reminds me of myself. He was always having problems paying his bills, and he was very behind on his tax bill. And there was some money that Wolfson um, was giving to Jim Garrison, and as I understand what occurred, Larry King briefly borrowed about $5,000 of this money – to pay the taxes that he owed instead of giving it to Jim Garrison. But Larry King did get to meet Jim Garrison and he got to hear some of his thoughts on what happened with John F. Kennedy in the assassination. Here's Larry King. Obviously, you know, my patented expression before he died uh, talking about what he learned from Garrison And why he was always open to the idea of a conspiracy
14: theory. I did see some stuff Garrison had that never got into the press or into the trial that has always left me open on this. An interview with a pilot. He played the interview for us at that dinner. A pilot who was hired by this guy in in New Orleans to fly to Dallas He's going to pick up a passenger at the airport. Didn't give him the name, but described him and would fit the description of Lee Harvey Oswald. You wait at the Dallas airport. This kid's going to come take him to Mexico. And he paid him $5,000, this pilot. And you'll get another five when you come back. And we'll pay for the plane and everything. He said, well, I'm at the airport. The guy never came. I'm listening to this on tape. And Garrison said to Kirstie, what would you do with this? The pilot eventually died of a heart attack. A heart attack that people questioned. But I heard that tape. Of a totally believable guy. What did he have to lose, you know? The guy never came. I interviewed the cop who arrested Lee Harvey Oswald. My life's been a swirl. He arrested him in the movie theater after he shot Tippett. Oswald said only one thing on the drive... From the movie theater to the jail. I'm a patsy. He didn't say he's innocent. He didn't say just, I'm a patsy. What does patsy mean? Patsy, lends you to think that he was involved in this and someone was supposed to be downstairs at the book depository that wasn't there. And he panicked. Ran around, shot Tippett, ran to a movie theater, why would he use Patsy? Then he had to be killed, didn't he? See, this is for the conspiracy theorists. Because if Oswald, he's going to have a ton of information. So you got to get somebody to kill him who's totally like an innocent. You get Jack Ruby, who loves the Kennedys, and who's crazy. You get Jack Ruby to do it. You can't do it. You, the conspirator, you're going to get caught. But you got to get rid of Oswald. And I'm in the swirl of all this. I mean, I've heard all this stuff. It was heady. I paid a price for Hetty. That's
2: for sure. Um, somebody, and then we we'll to get to your calls in a moment. Somebody that spent a lot of time investigating this was former senator from Colorado, former Democratic candidate for president two times, Gary Hart, obviously he was one of the first, I don't know if he was one of the first, but he was one of the first, in the tabloid era, was one of the first major politicians to be fallen by a sex scandal. You remember Don Donna Rice and the Good Ship Monkey business. Well, Gary Hart is an incredibly smart man. He still, still is. And he was a member of the Senate committee that investigated JFK's assassination. And I interviewed Gary Hart about... Um, About nine years ago, it was the, I think it was the 40th anniversary. No, it was the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And we talked about one of the aspects of this, which very few other people bring up. Although
1: Larry King just alluded to it there. Here's a portion of my conversation with Gary Hart. And the principal thing we came up with was, uh, were uh, assassination plots against foreign leaders, including Fidel Castro by uh, both the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, and even previous ones, and the use in the, that ca- those cases of the CIA of mafia figures. Wow. And two of those mafia figures, senior ones, were killed during our investigation. <laughs> so this opened up uh, an entire panoply of possibilities. The Warren Commission did not know... That the CIA was working with the mafia to try to kill Castro up until the time of the Kennedy assassination. So
2: that's a fact, right? This isn't speculation. This isn't some... This is a fact. Wow. This is a fact. Incredible. Incredible. I guess it's the first rule of assassination is kill the assassins.
1: Well, that's part of it. But also, um, as it turned out, kill the people who may have known who killed (laughs) the assassin (laughs) and why. Uh, A man called Sam Giancana, a man called Johnny Rosselli were both killed during our investigation, and those murders have never been solved.
2: There are some other off-the-wall theories. Uh, There's a theory by an author named Boner Menninger, who, or Bonner Manager that says it was an accident. He says he believes Oswald fired on JFK and a Secret Service agent fired back with a Colt AR-15 high-velocity rifle. And as the theory goes, the officer lost his balance when the car suddenly braked, and he accidentally discharged his weapon, killing Kennedy. That is something that I haven't heard a lot of scholars uh, take seriously. Another theory is that the Umbrella Man did it. Some pin JFK's murder on a man standing under a black umbrella 59 years ago today. By all accounts, a sunny day. What does he have an umbrella for? It must have been a signal, if not the murder weapon, right? The theory is so popular, Oliver Stone included this in the movie JFK, and he appears in Umbrella Academy. Um, Then – there's a theory they call the Coca-Cola conspiracy of one theory, which is that shooter Lee Harvey Oswald was a Dr. Pepper fan. And we know that as a fact because even Oswald's favorite beverage is part of the in- entry in conspiracy of one author Jim Moore. Sets out a theory that Oswald acted alone because after the assassination, Oswald was seen in the Texas School Book Depository drinking Coca-Cola instead of his beloved Dr. Pepper. Moore believes there couldn't be only one realistic explanation. Oswald must have shot the president and chose the wrong soft drink from the vending machine because he was nervous. Very interesting. And just to add to the soft drink aspect of this, um, you know where Nixon was at the time? Of this assassination? Dallas. What was he doing there? He was meeting with the board of Pepsi. Interesting. Um, Another theory, as I mentioned, is that it was Woody Harrelson's father. Um, You know, uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, there's a book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, that claims that uh, Woody Harrelson's father, Charles Harrelson, who killed a lot of people in his day, and uh, that he was responsible. You know where that theory came from? It came from Charles Harrison. When he was arrested, he b- basically said that he killed John F. Kennedy. But a lot of people d- uh, don't take that confession too seriously. There's what they call the Better Call Saul theory, where police officer Hugh McDonald blames the Soviets for contracting Saul, a rogue CIA agent, to kill Kennedy. There's the black dog man theory in uh, in which the killing of a president author, Robert Groden argues that a black dog man figure can be seen in a frame of the Zapruder film. The problem with that theory is that the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that an individual was in front of the bushes, not behind them. But some people still uh, buy that the theory of Oswald's Mexican trip being linked to the shooting. The theory of the CIA being involved. The theory of the Illuminati being involved. I think the most bizarre theory that I've ever heard, and I don't put any stock in this, is from Milton William Cooper, a former U.S. radio personality. A gun rights activist. An author who spread the news about Project Luna, a secret alien base on the dark side of the moon. And he promoted the theory. Seriously. That JFK was assassinated by a gas pressure device that aliens supplied to the driver of the limo because John F. Kennedy was about to expose Washington alien collusion. Now, uh, two years ago, I did interview Dr. Michael Sala about his belief on the Kennedy assassination and what possible involvement there may have been with UFOs. What do UFOs have to do with the Kennedy assassination? Well, Kennedy was someone
15: who had a background uh, that went all the way back to the Second World War, where he went to uh, post-war Germany as a guest. He actually accompanied the Secretary of the Navy, and they toured a lot of captured uh, German craft, and some of those were flying saucer-shaped craft, which is something that has been historically accepted, that these craft were being developed, even though many people are are sceptical that they were ever completed. But uh, that was the beginning of, of Kennedy being involved in this very highly secretive world of uh, flying saucers and UFOs. And that's something he took with him when he became president in terms of like finding out exactly what had happened over the years uh, between the Second World War and when he was uh, elected president.
2: We'll get to your thoughts on what may have happened in just a moment. 800-848-9222, 9222 open lines. 800-848-9222, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
9: Talk.
2: He, you know, he was on his way. Otis Spahn singing A Sad Day in Texas. It was 59 years ago today in Dallas, Texas, about um, it, when President Kennedy was killed, and the whole world changed quite literally. 800 848 92 22. I've talked enough. What do you think happened? Let me say hello to Al in Yonkers. Hello, Al.
16: Good morning, Frank. Uh, you know, Frank. In regards to that tragic day on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, I always thought, without question, like most Americans, I believe, or a good majority, you know, a good percentage of Americans, uh, or believe that it was a conspiracy. I always thought that it was organized crime uh, but but I also believe it could have been the communist and I also believe that there was another shooter in the grassy knoll and uh that's what I believe and it's uh right and
2: so what leads you to that conclusion?
16: Uh, because when the president was shot from behind from the you know the open limousine you know I believe there was a side shot to his neck. So I always found it was hard for me to believe how if he was shot from behind, how he could have a side shot also. I'm not, I'm not sure of the specifics. So I always had a problem with that. So... It was something that uh, I always believed without question, that it was a conspiracy.:
2: Yeah, well, uh, Al, thank you. and I'm glad the neck wound that he references, that's the so-called magic bullet theory, where it went into Kennedy's neck and then it ended up hitting Governor Connolly, I believe, in the wrist, causing him to drop his hat. And then, obviously, the fatal shot was the blow to Kennedy's head. Um, but I, I think the so-called single bullet theory, the magic bullet theory, that is one of the things that makes the Warren Commission account so difficult to swallow. It, it just – to see to follow the trajectory of that so-called single bullet, that magic bullet, it, it almost defies credulity. I, I, You know, they they act like the people that believe that there might have been a conspiracy are the ones that are off base. I actually think that the people that believe that the single bullet theory is real are the people that are way off base. 800-848-9222. Bob in the Bronx. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the,
9: the key word, embarrassment. Many law enforcement agencies are going to be embarrassed when those documents are released. The CIA, FBI, Dallas police. J.A. Gallagher probably knew what was going to happen.
2: Well, look, so I can buy that, but nobody involved in the CIA or the FBI today was involved in 1963. So why are the people there today?
9: It's the embarrassment factor. No mm-hmm. agency, no, no no law enforcement agency wants to be embarrassed.
2: Yeah. Even even this many decades later, Yes,
9: even today. Right. And I'll tell you something else. The family members who are alive today, who were related to the politicians back then, are going to be embarrassed, too.
2: Well, I mean, you, you might be right, Bob. And that was similar to what uh, Larry was saying. Bob, thanks for the call. I don't think embarrassment is a sufficient enough reason to not release these documents personally. 800-848-9222. Mo is in Queens. Hello, Mo.
17: Hi. Hi. I honestly think all these conspiracy theories are false.
2: Okay, tell us why.
17: Uh, I honestly think that um, John F. Kennedy went to Texas. The reason why he went to Texas is because he knew in Texas he he was not popular there. Mm -hmm. He wanted to go there to be with the Texan people. That's why he even had his roof open. Now, when he went he went. He went there to be. He to wanted to gain the, pop, the popularity in Texas. Now, people in Texas did not like him. He was a Democrat. People in Texas were in that area Republican. Well, no, no, they weren't. And,
2: they, remember, the the um, governor of they Texas.
17: They were right.
2: The governor of Texas who was, was riding with Kennedy was was uh, a Democrat. Both of Texas's U.S. senators at the time were Democrats. In fact, you didn't see Republicans getting but, elected in Texas until many years later.
17: They weren't getting elected, but a lot of real Texan people were actually Republican. And yeah. Okay. Although they did they did elect they did elect um Democratic people, but there were still a large percentage that were Republican I did not like Kennedy. Actually what I've researched actually hated Kennedy there. So he tried getting to be more popular there. He wasn't too popular there officially. So I was to thing that um Oswald did not hate it really hated Kennedy. I wanted to assassinate him like there are people right now. That are trying to assassinate our president, which should not be done, which is immoral. They hate him, and they always get caught. This person, and it was too late by the time he assassinated him.
2: All right, but so That's you just believe you just believe Oswald was this lone nut that was agitated, that didn't like uh, some of Kennedy's policies, and uh, he killed him for political reasons.
17: Could be, yeah. He it even makes, makes a lot. It makes it makes more sense than all these conspiracy theories that you can almost hardly prove. Well,
2: uh, fair enough. Okay, well, thank you. 800 848 Anne is on Long Island. Hello, Anne. Hello, good morning, Frank.
18: Um, I think a good history lesson for people, I visited the I visited the depository and, the, and uh, went along the grassy knoll. And what was very interesting is, you go to the depository, All the floors are closed. You just go straight to the top. And the curator there took me, took us over to where the boxes were. Everything's still the same. And the windows open. And he showed the angle of the rifle and how impossible with the turn. Uh, this. Couple of shots could have come with the amount of time, so I visually saw that. And then on the grassy knoll, uh, there was a fence with some trees, and behind it, now then, was a dumpster. This is ten years ago, mm-hmm. and it was very and trees. And it's very possible someone could have been behind there. Uh, straight, you know, it was straight across from where the the car was. So, I have a feeling, you know, I, it, it, just one person, I don't
2: know. So, having seen where Oswald was at the time, the school book depository, you don't believe that it's likely that Oswald could have made those shots, particularly against a moving vehicle? Correct. Interesting. Interesting. Correct. Do you have a thought? Obviously, you know, obviously your theory is based more on. You know, practical observation and the kind of the acoustics, but yes. um, or the ballistics, whatever. But do you have a thought as to who else might have been involved and/or why?
18: I'm still thinking that it's within our own country. Mm-hmm. Our, 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 yeah, I. I think that was interesting, what Castro said. I mean, if he was definitely the one, I don't think he would have lived as long as he did. Right. I agree with
2: that. More. I mean, that made sense when Ventura said that. I agree with that.
18: I agree with that, too. Yes. Right. Very definitely.
2: And thank you. Appreciate you sharing that observation. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 9222 Jeff is in Forest Hills. Hello, Jeff. Jeff. All right. Jeff's got something else to do. Uh... Mike in parts unknown. Hello, Mike. Parts unknown, south of the Mason Dixon. Frank, you know what? I agree with what that lady
4: said. I was nine years old when that happened, and I witnessed that assassination of Jack Ruby. You know, against Lee Harvey Oswald. There were too many, too, too many uh, factors involved. Uh, the CIA, Castro. Uh, uh, I don't believe in the you know uh, Lee Harvey Oswald that tough angle that he had. It's the grassy knoll. It's so many things, and they still haven't gotten to a definitive explanation why John F. Kennedy was assassinated because too many, you know, too many uh, fingers in the pie. CIA, like I said, and it's ridiculous. And we'll never know because that's the way the government wants it to be. You know, it's a smoke and mirrors theory. I don't think we'll ever be uh, fully uh, uh, documented, you know, in my in my understanding, you know.
2: Well, that's why I, I think it's so important for these documents to be released. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Thank you for. Uh, thank you, Mike. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tony is in Queens. Hello, Tony.
19: Yes, uh, Frank. How are you? Good. Uh, Tony. so uh, Tom Tony. Uh, Frank, you. Uh, can you tell me uh, if what Bill O'Reilly's uh, uh, conception is of the Kennedy assassination?
2: Yeah, he uh, does not believe that it was a conspiracy. Oh, Tony totally hang up. But the question, O'Reilly wrote a book called Killing Kennedy and uh he does not believe that there was a conspiracy. I uh, I actually find it harder to believe that there was not a conspiracy than there there was. 800-848-9222 Bob is in Connecticut. Hello Bob.
9: Hello, Frank.
2: Hello, Bob.
9: Something interesting. A 6.5 Carcano, that particular rifle cannot be cycled that fast. You can put one on your hip and try to cycle it that fast, and it cannot be done. I have one. It was only dropped once. So it's in perfect operating condition it cannot be cycled that fast yeah so
2: i don't know much about but guns it, you know i, yeah, I was but, talking with um greg kelly about this actually not long ago and he believes that oswald acted alone he believes the single bullet theory and he's got a lot more experience than with weapons than i do but um what do you I think have,
9: ha- i probably well what do I, he- I don't know but I, i'll tell you this the pointed bullet that they show as the magic bullet They never loaded the Carcano, the 6.5 Carcano, with that particular bullet. The 6.5 Carcano is a round, round round-headed bullet. They never loaded it for that. So it's kind of interesting.
2: Very very interesting, Bob. Uh, So the key takeaway you're saying is you don't believe it's possible that Oswald did this all by himself. No. No. I got gotcha. you. Okay. 800 Tony in White Plains. Hello, Tony.
11: Uh, good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, you know, I'm listening to all this conversation, and I was in the military when John Kennedy was assassinated. I was with the 101st Airborne Division. And nobody's talking about what the proximate cause was for his assassination. All these theories, you know, have some validity to them. He was assassinated. But the reason for his assassination was the Vietnam War. The military industrial complex found out that John Kennedy was going to withdraw all American troops out of Southeast Asia. He knew we could not win that war. So, uh, with that, uh, Lyndon Johnson was vice president. He was in the pocket of the military industrial complex. So by getting rid of them, Johnson steps in, and what happens to the Vietnam War? It escalates. General Westmoreland was the commander of the 101st Airborne Division prior to being sent to Vietnam. He told Johnson, give me the 101st in 1965, and I'll give you Vietnam in 1966. Well, the 1st Brigade, the 101st Airborne Division, plus the 1st and 3rd Marine Divisions were sent to Vietnam, and they took those skilled combat paratroopers, and they sent them up to the Central Highlands to guard the rice paddies when the mission was to use B-52 bombers to blow the hell out of the Ho Chi Minh Trail straight into Hanoi, and 101st and the Marine Divisions and other Army units would go in and the war would have been over. But Johnson backed out, and Westmoreland was going to tell the American public the story Instead, he was given another star. He kept his mouth shut, and the war continued. Now, fast forward a little bit. Johnson, in 1968, when he was on TV giving a, uh, a speech to the American public, he never told anybody, not even Lady Bird, that he was not going to run for president. But he announced it on national TV which startled and shocked a lot of people. Now he could not be assassinated, and Humphrey would not be put in the presidency uh, as his successor, which would have per- uh, perpetuated the Vietnam War, God knows how many more years into the future.
2: Well, I mean, Humphrey did seem to be making that transition to be more being more of a, a peace candidate, more towards ending the war. You think he would have continued the war?
11: Oh, absolutely. You know, I... I served during that entire period, and uh, I, was, uh, I was a fan of John F. Kennedy. I was going to join the special forces after, uh, after jump school. After he was assassinated, I decided to go into the 101st mm-hmm. Airborne. I have spent over 30 years watching every movie made and all the specials and everything made about it. They all have, they all have some positive aspects, mm. but the best movie— that was made at that time had to be made with the information given by a whistleblower, because if you watch this movie, Executive Action, you and then with the knowledge you have today and everything that's transpired over 50 years— you'll see that all the pieces to the puzzle come together. You know, I
2: haven't seen that film, but I will uh, I will check it out. It look. Oh, Burt Lancaster is in this. I'm going to see this. Oh, it's based on Mark Lane's book. I've read some of Mark Lane's work. He's very good. Hey, uh, Tony, it's a great call. Very interesting. And, you know, I've spoken with um, a longtime CIA officer and veteran, Ray McGovern, uh, many times, and... His theory is pretty similar to yours. He doesn't make the same claim about Hubert Humphrey that you do, but uh, he does buy into almost verbatim what you said about uh, the military-industrial complex and their role in wanting to keep that Vietnam War going. Thank you, Tony, and the Cold War to some extent. I'm paraphrasing what Ray McGovern said. I don't have that audio ahead of me, but uh, maybe we'll we'll cover that tomorrow because people seem really into this. Uh, If there's time, we'll do – you know what we'll do? We'll hold off on the mail until next hour. And we'll take some more of your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight
0: ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Pearl Jam, uh, one of the few alternative pop rock songs that I know that's written about the brain of John F. Kennedy. 800 848 9222, talking about what happened 59 years ago today, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I'm asking you the question what do you think happened? 800 848 9222. Richard is in Queens. Hello, Richard. I wanted to go back a
7: step and and tell you that in 1977 I was in Dallas had half an hour to kill, and has to see Dealey Plaza. You look at the scene, you say, no way. No way that he gets shot from up there going down in that, at that angle. In 1990, a cousin of mine comes out of Russia, has half an hour to kill in Dallas, where he gets interviewed for a job. And he goes, looks at Dealey Plaza. I said, what do you think? He says, no way. That's all. Perfect afraid to take Dallas, go
2: look at Dealer Plaza. Well, I'll never believe and me. Thank you, Richard. No, 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 thank you. I mean, that seems to be the consensus among folks that have been there, and I've not been to Dallas, but I will check it out. Liz is in Manhattan. Hello, Liz. Uh,
20: I was in the Oval Office. My father worked for uh, Kennedy, and there was something about the way he looked that made him look very vulnerable. And I just said to him, please be careful. And he laughed at me and gave me a hug and had me sit in the rocking chair. But um, he really had a charisma, but there was something weird. I just didn't get a good feeling Hmm. for him. What was your dad's role
2: working for Canada? My
20: father was ambassador. Uh, He had worked with Ford Motor Company, and he was ambassador for um, all the industries in Europe. Oh, wh- In, uh, what was his name? William T. Gossett. Oh, he wow. worked, uh, he was an uh, attorney, the head attorney for uh, f- uh, Ford Motor Company for years, Do- and then president of the American Bar and um, argued cases before the Supreme Court.
2: Sure. No, no, I'm I'm familiar with him. What was his theory about what happened with the assassination?
20: Oh, my father was very—he never believed in any conspiracies at all. He didn't really talk about it that much. He knew Johnson because he came from Texas. Mm -hmm. So he was concentrating on if he would ruin the country because our family is all very conservative. And uh, especially since my grandfather was chief justice. So um, we run in a a more right— and left but he wanted to always be fair and um, he really he he didn't really talk about it that much Frank
2: that that's really interesting Liz we've talked before right about your grandfather yeah. Charles Evan Hughes yeah. if I'm remembering correctly right. yeah that's pretty neat uh who himself ran for president as the Republican nominee in 1916. Yeah, he lost the, yeah, Wilson, I've the, uh, the bearded iceberg they called him the
20: uh he was so not that way but because California is liberal, and they they thought he had won. Mm-hmm. My mother was standing on the balcony; everyone was waving, and then the vote came in from California, and he had lost.
2: Yeah, uh, Liz, I have to run. I appreciate the call, okay, and you sharing you. your experience. Thanks. Call again. Um, that that is that's for real. Her her grandfather was the chief justice of the United States, Charles Evan Hughes, and New Yorker, by the way. Uh, who was the Republican nominee for president in 1916, if memory serves. All right. Uh, a lot of other stuff to get to. We're going to talk with Courtney, Courtney Carter Jesus, author of a children's book called Eva the Kid Reporter. Until then, your influence counts, so use it.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So, um, as I've described before, on my block, we have a very good... We have a very friendly block. It's a very convivial atmosphere, especially when it's a little warmer out. Everybody goes on one another's stoop. Everyone goes on one another's lawn. Everybody goes in one another's house. And there's, I'd say, eight or nine houses that are all outside all the time, um, the children that are a little older all play together. They play outside together. They play inside together. They are it's it's a wonderful block. It's really a wonderful community to be a part of, and it's a real it's a real neighborhood. You know, it's like old school. Matt Blaze would hate it. He wouldn't last five minutes in our block. Now, very interesting. I wasn't going to mention this, but now I am, and I'll tell you why. I'm listening to two weeks ago, maybe less. But I think it was two weeks ago. Our neighbors across the street, who we're very close with, but thankfully for the purposes of this discussion, I don't think they listen to this show. So if you run into them, don't tell them I'm talking about them. But they have two small boys. Not that small. I think the older one is three and the the older one is maybe five or six and the younger one is three. I want to say that's the range that we're dealing with. And by all accounts, they both seem like great parents, very involved, making sure their kids play outside and are not sitting inside playing video games all the time, looking after their children, or always making sure they're well-fed, well taken care of, um, and having a good time. Their contentment, the contentment of these children, seems very important to their parents. And from all I can tell, is the, they're very, very tight-knit family, and they're great. But two weeks ago. The mom said something to one of our other neighbors, not directly to me, but she said something to one of our other neighbors that I found very strange and very odd. She said her older boy, five or six, has a tough time getting to sleep. So she actually said in, you know, in earshot of me, not to me, but, you know, I was five feet away she said that what she does is she gives her sons melatonin when they go to bed to go to sleep and says that it really helps knock these kids out. And I was really taken aback. One, because I don't like to take much myself to go to sleep or to get up or whatever the case may be, but to give – even a little bit of melatonin to a child, a five or six year old, I I was dumbfounded. And then she's describing a conversation with one of her kids. And she says to our other neighbor, she says in words or substance, yeah, I'm I'm not going to give these children's real names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. She said, let's say Charlie, Charlie saying to me, oh, please don't give me melatonin. Please don't give me melatonin. And she had never told her son what melatonin was. And so the mom's reaction as she's recounting this story was, I'm like, you know, you know, she's had a, had a couple of, uh, of drinks as she's having this conversation. She's very animated. And she says, um, I'm like, how do you even know what melatonin is to specifically ask not to be given it? And by the way, this is a, a very intelligent woman, well-educated, who works in medicine, by the way, in medicine. So I bring this up with my brother, who's a Ph.D. in either biochemistry or neurochemistry. And he said, yeah, you should absolutely not do that. You should absolutely not drug your kids, even if it's a natural supplement, to get them to go to sleep. That is pretty close to high on the list of things that you should never do. So I'm reading the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Big article. Headline. Parents are giving kids melatonin to help them sleep. Doctors have concerns. Apparently, during the the pandemic, the use of parents giving their children supplements to treat uh, pandemic-induced stress and sleep problems skyrocketed. But the Wall Street Journal asks the question, and they don't really come up with an answer. They ask the question, is long-term use okay? Stressed-out parents, I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal, are increasingly giving their children melatonin to help them sleep, raising concerns about some, among some pediatricians about the long-term effects. Doctors... Reports steep increases in child melatonin consumption in recent years, driven partly by parents trying to help their kids cope with sleep disruptions during the pandemic. Americans overall spent nearly twice as much on melatonin products in the past 12 months. That's nearly $1.1 billion as they did in the same period three years ago. The company doesn't track melatonin consumption specifically among children. One reason. That melatonin is popular among adults and children alike is that it's broadly considered by doctors to to be safe as a temporary sleep aid. And the melatonin in dietary supplements is most often a synthetic form of the naturally occurring hormone in our brains, uh, hormone that our brains produce to help us fall asleep. The concerns arise with long-term use. Judith Owens pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital Sleep Center, says that while melatonin isn't addictive, she's worried that it can be psychologically habit-forming, eventually making it more difficult to fall asleep without it. That is exactly my concern, and it's one of the reasons I don't think I would ever give my son melatonin. And that's one of the reasons I really don't like to take it myself, because I don't want to get to a point where the only way I could fall asleep is with melatonin. Same thing. You know, I have a lot of friends that um, uh, that they, they go to bed with a glass of wine because they can't fall asleep without a glass of wine. Other friends, um, uh, Tylenol PM. Uh, some friends who've had really difficult sleep problems, they take Ambien. I have another friend, she swears by, has not gone to bed as long as I've known her without taking a weed gummy which are varying strength. I don't know the strengths and what comes with it, but she needs that to get to sleep. I am terrified of needing anything to get to sleep. Now I do take melatonin and I'll say, maybe I take it once every two weeks or so, maybe once every three weeks. I take it when I'm in the habit of two or three days in a row, getting up in the middle of the night, like on a Friday or Saturday, I'll take it so that I can hopefully sleep through the night. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, I don't think this is a good idea. I, I'm no expert, I'm certainly no doctor. But as somebody that uh, is very careful with what you know he would give his son, I, uh, I find this very concerning: the uptick in parents giving their children sleep supplements. What do you think? And I want to remind everybody, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent that does give a sleep supplement like melatonin to your child, this is a judgment-free zone. Nobody's going to say that you're a horrible parent or anything like that. Uh, I want to have a real conversation about this because apparently this is all the rage. A lot of parents around the country are doing this, and uh, I have some concerns As to to this, 800-848-9222, Dr. Owens from Boston Children's Hospital says, I cringe when a parent tells me that their child asks for their melatonin every night. See, that's the exact opposite of my neighbor's. My neighbor's children are asking not to get melatonin every night. She estimates, Dr. Owens, that almost all of the patients she sees are now on melatonin or have taken it previously. That's compared with only 20% of her patients 5 to 10 years ago. This fall, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine released a health advisory urging parents to talk to a doctor before giving their children melatonin. That mirrors similar recommendations posted by the National Institute of Health. The number of pediatric ingestions reported to poison control centers has surged in recent years, suggesting a rise in accidental ingestions as well as intentional ones. The annual number of pediatric cases involving melatonin ingestion reported to poison centers across the U.S. increased by 41% um, in 2021. So this is, uh, I think it's very concerning. Am I being a little dramatic or am I being, am I worrying needlessly? After I, I made the denunciation of, um, Whatever it was, I think red dye number five. I was bombarded with a whole bunch of people writing to me, and my wife doing a lot of research saying, Oh, no, come on. You have to eat this many, this many gallons of it before it actually does anything to you. And even then, it's only in the rarest of cases. You're making too much about it. If you have food once in a while that has red dye number five, it's okay. Maybe that's the same situation here. Maybe I'm making too much of giving children melatonin. But I don't think so. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Steve in Manhattan has been very patiently holding, which for him to do anything patiently is difficult. Hello, Steve.
21: All uh, right, and Folks who don't know, Frank is doing the show from the grass, you know. Now, do you want me to uh, talk about Red Dye or do you want me to talk about Kennedy for a couple
2: of minutes? The, the, sto- the, 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 the floor is yours, Steve. Be heard on whatever issue you want.
21: All right, great. First of all, the, for the newer portion of the audience, younger people, the Kennedy assassination is a, what's called a cottage industry. A lot of people make money on it. In high school, I wrote a book about it. I, I It was titled uh, uh, Two Shooters But No Conspiracy, Two Nuts Showed Up on the Same Day to Kill the President. But the thing is, a, a lot of people have to realize what took place in that time period, and that solves the mystery. Um, I'm a firm believer, you know, they talk about cover-ups and conspiracies. You can throw that stuff out the window. I mean, what do you mean by a conspiracy or a cover-up that the government knows who actually did this? Do you realize the meatheads we had in the government in the last 50, 60 years? They can't cover up nothing. And this is my take is that in 1963, powerful people in this country, uh the caller before the woman who had the grandfather's Supreme Court justice Father came from Ford Motor Company. Robert McNamara came from Ford Motor Company, too. Remember that. But in 63, 64, the powerful people in the country, whether in politics, law enforcement or in uh, corporations, they did not want this murder solved, okay? That's why there'll be nothing in the archives on this. Well, so then why I won't they, they just
2: it. release the documents, if that's the case?
21: They can, they can do it, because it's some p- parts of it could be embarrassing, but it will
9: not solve the mystery. No, no, no I
2: case. believe that. I, I don't think there's some document uh, sitting on a shelf no. in the National Archives somewhere and says that the uh, the real c- killer is uh, George, George Simpson. No, I, 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 I think you're exactly right uh steve nope. thank you for the call can well, you can go ahead I finish, can I, I, finish? Oh, wow. I didn't know we Come on. i still got going. some good
21: parts here to finish oh up with oh boy, oh boy. Go, go ahead, ahead. can i do it please go okay. ahead. just three quick things here dorothy Biden- kilgallen who was a socialite reporter writer interviewed jack ruby she dies a few weeks later remember now joe Kennedy's father in the first year of kennedy's presidency he suffers a stroke he's he's an, really an invalid he's not a player anymore with whoever you think he plays with okay and also um the kennedy um Autopsy. One of the pictures when Kennedy got hit in the head, right? It basically snapped his scalp back. It, It scalped him, but it stayed in place. And when they took one of the one of the autopsy photos, the back of his head is well known. All the doctors interviewed in the in the emergency room in Dallas all said the back. Part of the right of his head was blown out. They took his scalp and they pulled it back over his skull to cover a massive head wound there. Mm -hmm. And I'll just finish up with this. Oswald used—this is where the real gun guys know. Oswald used a single-bolt action gun. Now that means he fires the shot. He has to release the bolt and get the shell out of there and put another bullet in there. No way could he do it. And remember that there was a giant tree in front of that building. Right. But except if someone could call and say that rifle could shoot bullets that could change direction. Then so, have- who
2: do you think was responsible, Steve?
21: I don't. I don't. You know what? I do have theories on that. But I, I really don't – I just think it just adds to it. I I could put together – but I would tell people, if you investigated this, I would go over Oswald with a fine cold. I mean, really, I want to know who he was collecting baseball cards with. Jack Ruby, I, we know his connections, but I would really go deeper with him. And I want to know what he told Dorothy Kilgallen. Too, before yeah, she well, died I was talking
2: with it. that about with uh, Mark Shaw, the author of the book "The Reporter Who Knew Too Much" uh, last week. He's going to join me again next week. We'll follow up on that. Thank you, Steve. Um, just to go back to this melatonin situation, where with this trend of children uh, taking melatonin, sleep doctors and mental health professionals are expressing concern about this, but they're not exactly raising warning flags about this. They're not exactly telling parents, "Don't do it." They're um, concerned about increased use in children because there's so little research on this. Sleep doctors say they have more questions than answers about children and melatonin, including whether long-term use could reduce efficacy or could affect the body's natural production of melatonin or other hormones as they enter puberty. That's one of my big concerns. That's why I wouldn't give my son melatonin. Uh, curious what you would do. 800 848 Donovan is from Canada. Hello, Donovan.
22: Hi, Frank. Uh, great subject and something I can relate to. Uh, I know have, I've been on the show before. I've been completely blind since birth and also happened to have a father who is an endocrinologist. Oh, really? He on all the, yeah, he was up on all the sciences sure. and... And was curious about different things, and he had read an article back in the mid '90s about um, melatonin being useful for blind people because uh, not having uh, proper circadian rhythms, not being able to see light and dark, uh, our sleep patterns can be out of whack. And so I remember when I was 11 years old, he uh, started uh, giving me melatonin at night, and we tried, you know, a month on, a month off. Uh, it definitely helped. Uh, I definitely got to say when I was leading into the, the summer, uh, my parents, you know, took me off it because it wasn't as as necessary to have, you know, the same amount of restful sleep as I wasn't going to school the next day, and it was it was something to get used to for the first few nights not taking it. So I can attest both to the helpful qualities of it, as well as the psychological uh, addictive qualities.
2: If you had an 11-year-old child, would you be comfortable giving, giving that child melatonin regularly?
22: I think in very small doses. Uh, and I'd have to to figure out you know, why they weren't sleeping properly. If it was something going on psychologically, if it was just an overactive brain, I'd probably want to do it in conjunction with something like um, relaxation exercises or something to calm their brain down before going to bed and, and try, you know, those sorts of remedies before resorting to drugs.
2: Interesting. Hey, uh, Donovan, do you still take melatonin today?
22: You know, it's funny. I, I will take it on occasion. Um, I find it actually makes me too drowsy. But the, the kind of long story short, I, I injured myself uh, as I have a back injury due to an ankle sprain from a ski injury years ago. And so I'm not taking amitriptyline for the nerve pain. And that actually takes the place of melatonin because I find not only does my back feel better, but I, I tend to sleep incredibly well. I would uh, think – yeah, maybe-
2: Donovan, that, you know, skiing when you can see is dangerous enough. But I have to think that blind skiing is incredibly precarious.
22: Well, I've I've done it all my life ever since age three and um, actually had the opportunity earlier this year to go ski in the backcountry for the first time uh, with a, um, a group of other blind skiers. But wow. I've just been very lucky. Our, our, our home mountain, or the mountain I use, is Whistler Blackcomb, which is two hours away from Vancouver. And they have an excellent adaptive ski program um, where they get to people of different disabilities out on skis. And I've also trained my own guides to do it through use of a, a walkie-talkie system, like a, yeah. uh, I've got a microphone in my helmet, and they have a, or a, I have a headphone, and they have a microphone. Tell me where to turn.
2: That's wild, Donovan. I give you a lot of credit. You're a better man than me. Thank you for the insight. Appreciate it. Um, so we're talking about this trend of parents giving their children melatonin. I was very alarmed when I heard my neighbor say this, and very surprised, quite frankly, because she seems like such a good mom. But apparently this is the thing to do now is to give your kids melatonin to help them sleep. And Nicole Christian Brathwaite, who's a child psychiatrist at well, at well Minds Psychiatry in Boston, said to the Wall Street Journal, it's difficult to even answer the question when a parent asks, what's the risk? Because many parents reached for melatonin to fend off sleep disturbances during the pandemic. Sometimes it was at the suggestion of their pediatrician, There are other doctors, mental health experts, and a growing number of – because if you have a child that won't sleep, right, is it better to have them sleep with melatonin or to not have them sleep? I think the answer is probably with melatonin. But then if they need it every day, does that become a problem? I think it does. So um, approximately 80% of Dr. Christian Brathwaite's child and adolescent patients in the past year are currently taking or have previously taken melatonin. So I'm surprised more parents are not weighing in on this. To tell me about your own experiences. 800-848-9222. Prescriptions are required to access melatonin in many countries. Not in this one. It is available over the counter right here in the United States, included, uh, including as sugary gummies, which children really like. 800 Dave and Dumont. Hello, Dave.
10: Hey, Frank. How's it going tonight? Good. Thank you. G- good. I, I want to let you know that I am an insomniac. I've been Thank an insom-
2: goodness. I need the listeners.
10: <laughs> well, sometimes I do sleep uh, during the night. I go to bed around 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 in the morning, and it takes me like an hour and a half to get to sleep because I have to go through a whole ritual. Uh, meditation relaxation cassette uh, and then that helps me to fall asleep but uh, you know then m- my sleep is very erratic. I've been taking zonics for 28 years yes and I it used to work I was taking one and a half milligrams when I first started in like 1994 I went to uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital to detox off for of Xanax. And let me tell you what a nightmare that was. They had me as a drug addict that I was shooting up. They had me looking at videos of drug addicts and everything, and the psychiatrist that was there. This lady was a nut. Mm. And I was like, and they wouldn't, I went in voluntarily and they wouldn't let me leave.
2: Well, I mean, I'm sorry for that whole experience, but um, what would you do if you had a child that was having a difficult time with sleeping? It sounds like obviously Xanax is off the table. Would you give them melatonin?
10: I would speak to a pediatrician, Mm. uh, but as far as for myself, I wish I never took the Xanax because these old-style drugs, the old drugs from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, They all have long-term side effects. We're talking about 20, 25 years down the road, which is is what I'm getting now, which is crazy dreams.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm taking
10: like three milligrams now to go to sleep.
2: I'm sorry to hear that, uh, Dave. I appreciate the call. I'm wishing you the best of luck. Clearly, one of those side effects is um, thinking that Hulk Hogan went to WCW in 1996 instead of 1994. Bob is in Verona. Hello, Bob.
23: Hey, um, I just, you know, just a thought. I, so I, I'm dealing with uh, cancer, and so my, my pattern is all, you know, no, thank you. And, I, you know, my, my sleeping pattern is all messed up. So you know, I started taking other things, cause, like your last caller, um, you know, take a Xanax at night because your brain's just spinning thinking about things. Um, that's that's one thing. And, you know, obviously you got to keep that to a limit. But melatonin, you know, your body naturally creates melatonin. So when you're giving your child melatonin, you're giving them something that that your body already produces, like testosterone, like anything right. else. You know, so you're now you're, you're you're tricking your body. I mean, what what they're giving these children is something that's gonna it's gonna cause a long term effect as far as their 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 sleep patterns. Well, well Bob, that's exactly
2: that's exactly my fear. So, uh, yeah. l- are you a parent? You know, no, fortunately, fortunately, I never had. No, OK, well, uh, but yeah, if, yeah. if so you had I'm, a, I'm
23: an uncle a million times over. Great. Yeah.
2: OK, so if you had a child or if you were if you were looking after your niece or your nephew and they just can't sleep because they're anxious, because they're stressed, whatever the case okay. may be, they can't sleep and they're suffering from insomnia um, all the time. What would you do? Would you give melatonin a yeah. try? I
23: maybe as
2: a, you know, a soft version of it,
23: but I mean, I would probably just try to, you know, lay with them and, you know, I don't know, you know, coax them to sleep, you know, try to, you know, I don't know, play some background music, you know, again, I mean, I have babysat my niece and nephews and, you know, they've been a little antsy because it's exciting, Uncle Bob's over, you know, whatever, you know, I don't think pills are the answer, especially when you're Augmenting something that their body is already agreed. Created. Agreed,
2: and that's exactly my you concern, uh, Bob. Go, best of luck with your health. Uh, I, I wishing you. you the best, and call again, okay? Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I want to make note of one thing: uh, serious problems following. And I researched this. This was the first thing that I researched after hearing my neighbor. Talk about giving her kids melatonin. Serious problems following accidental or too much melatonin use are incredibly rare in children. And uh, doctors can't really point to many instances of, say, a child overdosing on melatonin and having a big, big problem because of it. So... I don't want to act like this is the fentanyl epidemic. I don't want to act like this is uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the same sort of problem that the epidemic of obesity and uh, uh, juvenile diabetes is. it's It's not, but I just wonder, with so many parents turning to this, is this wise? And I fear it may not be. very quickly, Tony, uh, in the Bronx, what do you, what do you think?
9: Hey, Frankie. Hey, hey look, I have lots of kids. And they're nuts, and they're little, and they play <laughs> games all night long. And I think it's okay to give a little bit every now and then because my wife definitely does. These melatonin pills and their gummies, they're marketed for kids, right? But I think it's more important to know that we give the kids melatonin so they can sleep, but in reality, we give the kids melatonin so the parents
2: mm, can mm, Interesting.
9: I think that is the big part. Uh,
2: that's a great point, uh, Tony. How many children do you have? Three. Three. Well, good luck uh, with that, with everybody, and uh, thanks for sharing that perspective. I'm glad you said that because, one, the fact that you point out that they are marketing these supplements for children is something that I haven't seen in a lot of the coverage except what what I just mentioned, that they have these gummies that kids really like. And, two, the fact that a lot of these parents who are so concerned about their child's getting a good night's sleep – a lot of times they're probably concerned about themselves getting a good night's sleep. It's a fair point. 800 848 Co- Speaking of children, Courtney Carter De Jesus joins us next. She is the author of a new book called Eva, the Kid Reporter.
0: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. And as the parent of someone who is going to be one on Friday... I can't tell you how many gifts we have gotten over the course of the last year and a half that we'll never use Uh, things that we are going to have to donate give away or in some cases throw away which in some cases we have never opened and i hate doing that and my wife hates doing it and and carmine to the extent that he is able to express dislike about anything he doesn't seem to really enjoy doing it but there's one gift that i always really treasure and that's when people have sent us books and we've been very, very blessed to have a broad collection of children's books. We've bought him a bunch and a bunch of people have gifted him books. In fact, at uh, my wife's baby shower, instead uh, instead of a gift, we asked everybody to bring one of their favorite children's books. And now he has just a phenomenal library. So I've become quite a student of what makes a good children's book and what makes a bad children's book. And you would be shocked at the amount of variety there is in terms of children's literature, such wide disparities in the quality of the illustration, the quality of the story, the lessons that children can learn from the story. And I came across a book last week that was just tailor-made for my son. His mother is a journalist, and uh, obviously I'm very fond of uh, the news business as well, and we came across this book called Eva, the Kid Reporter, all about a little girl. Now, I don't have a little girl, but, you know, who knows? One day maybe he'll become a little girl or we'll have a little girl of her own. All about a little girl who asks a lot of questions, which reminded myself of me as a young person, and her aspirations of one day being a reporter. And it just so happens that uh, the author of Eva, the Kid Reporter, is not only a Distinguished author and a former journalist in her own right. She is the daughter of a legendary broadcast journalist, a very close friend of mine for 20 years, and a colleague of mine at WABC. I am very, very pleased to welcome Courtney Carter de Jesus, the author of Eva, the Kid Reporter. Courtney, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Congratulations on the new book.
24: Hi, thank you so much. I'm so glad that Carmine liked it. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Happy early Thanksgiving to you and the family and happy early
2: birthday to Carmine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you on all. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. So We did read this uh, book again yesterday for the the second time and the second time Carmine seemed to enjoy it even more because he kind (laughs) of got the impression that he was not supposed to try to eat or lick the pages but instead look at the pictures (laughs) and listen to me read to him. But uh, obviously you were the daughter of a journalist. I have to think that probably influenced your own uh, choice of career to go into the broadcast uh, medium. Is that fair to say?
24: Yes. Well, first of all, I'm glad that Carmine found the book not only entertaining, but very tasty, because (laughs) I have a year and a half um, uh, daughter at home, and she does the same thing. So she she likes to look at the words, but she likes to also, you know, just experiment with it. It's what they do at that age. Um, But yes, so as being that you're a colleague of my father's, you know his background, his history, And it definitely influenced me and influenced the book. My father put a microphone in my hand when I was around five or six years old. I'd run around with him at City Hall and to various parties and political events, national conventions in terms of politics. We traveled together as a family. And so journalism has always been in my life since day one.
2: Well, that's wonderful. By the way, how many uh, political conventions did you end up going to as a child?
24: I honestly can't even remember there were there were a lot. Um I didn't count on one hand because I was remembering the experiences as a little girl seeing all of those things and seeing the different cities was amazing. Um it it was surreal and so I got to see it up close with my father, Dominic Carter, that you guys, you know, listen to here. As you said, he's a legendary broadcast journalist, and he definitely inspired me and Eva's adventures. Because as a journalist, you know, every day is different. No day is the same. So if you are a curious person and you love to, to learn about people in the world, it's a profession for you.
2: When did you know this was something that you wanted to pursue?
24: Well, I think it gets from, you know, seeing my, my father um, and his travels. He traveled to Japan and South Africa, you know, uh, doing work and just got to meet really cool, interesting people, got to change a lot of lives and change uh, laws and just saw what he was doing. And so as I got older, um, my only interest was getting into Syracuse University, which, as you know, has a great Journalism program. I went to the S.I. Newhouse School of Public Communications. And so I also loved to write when I was younger, and it was just a natural fit. I I loved uh, learning about people, and I loved writing and seeing my dad. It just all came together, and I wanted to pursue that career path. So.
2: How about um, your decision to write this book, Eva, the Kid Reporter? It's a wonderful book. Uh, the illustrations are by Patricia Braga, but it's a, a great story with a great central character. And uh, like I said, even though it's a children's book, I found myself empathizing with, at sometimes, Eva's uh, circumstances throughout the book and at sometimes her parents' circumstances throughout the book. What made you want to write this?
24: Well, you know, as you know, you're a fellow parent. um in and- COVID affected all of us, right, in different ways, everyone in this world. And for me, um, COVID was a time of of deep reflection, like it was for a lot of people. And so I was actually home with my son, who's now uh, almost 10. But I was home with him during COVID. And to keep ourselves entertained, we read a lot of children's books. And like you said, these children's books have such great messages. There's so many things that you can learn from them, even as an adult reading it to your child. It seems like they're speaking to you, the parent, sometimes. And so we read a lot of books during COVID, and I was at home doing my work in journalism, reporting live from my dining room while I was home with my son. And so all of those experiences uh, put the, well, I guess sparked the idea, you would say, uh, in my head of, I should just write my own children's book about this and, and my adventures, because Eva is myself as a little girl. So. That's where
2: that came from. No, that's uh, that's terrific. Uh, The book is dedicated to uh, Carter and Eva. Those are your children, I imagine.
24: Correct, yes.
2: Now, um, the book is all about uh, a little girl who asks a lot of questions and sometimes her (laughs) her classmates, sometimes her teacher uh, gives her a little bit of a hard time for asking so many questions. And then uh, her dad makes a gift to her of a notebook to write down some of these answers. And she gets to meet a real uh, TV journalist But I I really think that children, no matter what their interest, no matter what their personality type, they can probably benefit from this book a great deal. What are you hoping that children take from this?
24: I'm hoping that they understand that you can, A, be whatever you want to be in this world. Um, We can all start out dreaming and aspiring to be something, a baseball player, a journalist, an actor, a doctor, a teacher, a teacher. And if you believe in yourself, you can get there. And I think most importantly, though, it's about self-esteem because what Eva doesn't like about herself is her wanting to ask questions. Are people telling her to be quiet and stop talking so much and stop being so curious? And she kind of gets hesitant and wants to change who she is until she realizes that quality is what makes her special. So I want children, no matter what profession they want to go into or what they like or what hobbies they have, to realize that things that they may not like about themselves are usually what make them unique and propel them to be as best as they can be in the future.
2: Well, that's uh, absolutely terrific. Do you envision Eva being a character in future children's books or is uh, the next one going to feature (laughs) uh, a book about Carter?
24: You know what? I've actually heard this several times from different readers and I didn't even um, think about that in terms of, her future, because I was so stuck on on her present character and getting that out there for the young girls her age and the young boys her age as well. But the readers sparked the idea for me that this may be a series where we're going to see Eva get older and she's going to go to middle school and go to high school and see that happen for the kids and see the progression. But yes, there will also be another book Uh, about my son Carter and he's really into YouTube and social media so I think it's going to be something about being an influencer which is a totally new career that wasn't even around you know 10-20 years ago.
2: Well, that's so. terrific. I'll look forward to reading. Uh, I'll look forward to reading that one as well. Uh, I know you were a journalist out in Rhode Island. Did you intentionally choose to go out of New York because your father was so well established in New York, or did you go out of New York because uh, you felt that it would uh, be easier to start your own journalism career there? W- why did you choose to go to Rhode Island?
24: Uh, I. think it was both. So I did, you know, as you know, you're a journalist. So uh, in the journalism field, a lot of times you move around sometimes, particularly in broadcast journalism, um, because of the different TV markets as you're getting started in your career and you're younger, trying to get to the bigger markets like New York and Chicago and L.A. Um, But yes, my dad is such a big presence, um, you know, not only locally, but nationally, that it is hard for someone to see me and not see his work and his body of work is so extensive and he's had such a great career for the past 30 years, um, that I did want to to branch out on my own. Um, although I will definitely take the association with him any day because he's fantastic at what he does. You know, you know, that, um, as his colleague. Oh, nobody better.
2: Nobody better. That's for sure. Absolutely. (laughs)
24: Thank you. Thank you. So it's definitely a great legacy to have, but people definitely, when they see me and they hear my name and my last name it's they hear, you know, my father's last name, um, it doesn't help that we also look very much alike. So, <laughs> like, twins.
2: <laughs> I think you're a little prettier than he is. I don't want to. Oh, thank uh, you. I, I'll take that. I don't, wanna... I don't know
24: if. I don't, I don't want to
2: slight him in any way, but if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Courtney Carter de uh, She is the author of a new children's book. It's called Eva, the Kid Reporter. It's terrific. It's a uh, it's a quick read, and I can honestly say it's the last book I read. So if uh, you want to check it out, it makes a great gift for the holidays. If you know someone with a child or if you know someone who has an inquisitive child or if you know someone who's in- expecting, it's a, a terrific uh, book, Eva, the Kid Reporter. Uh, what is the best way for people to get it, Courtney? Is Is it Amazon or do you prefer people get it some other way?
24: Yeah, so I have a website which is evathekidreporter dot com. Again, that's evathekidreporter dot com. Um, but it was picked up by Walmart and Target and Barnes and Noble and Amazon, which has been fantastic. Um, so if you like to get it there, um, it's also available there. Um, but it is available on my website, evathekidreporter.com. dot com.
2: Well, that is absolutely terrific. I see that you have made the transition, like a lot of journalists have over the years. To instead of covering the news helping to make and shape the news and now you're actually working for the treasurer out there in rhode island tell me a little bit about that transition yeah
24: so it's it's been great uh he's a very intelligent man the treasurer of rhode island is currently um seth magaziner who's also now the congressman elect for rhode island oh are uh, you going to
2: be uh going with him to the congressional office or are you staying with the treasurer's office or are you, oh you're,
24: you- try- you're you're trying to get the exclusive there you go <laughs> I will definitely let people know know soon uh what what I am doing but that was a good one there though you <laughs> almost got me
2: um uh. <laughs> well congratulations that's great of to him and to you that's wonderful uh that that that's wonderful do you miss reco- um covering the news and do you think that you might ever go back
24: You know, never say never, right? I think uh, journalism is very addictive uh, uh, because I just feel like you get to see so much and do so much and be in so many different places. Um, Right now, you know, I'm focused on politics. I've always loved politics. I think it was just being in that political arena since I was little. Um, And there's also a lot of things that you can do in politics to help people and change lives. So, that's that's what I'm doing now. It's where I'm at now. But I never say never to going back into reporting.
2: Well, that's absolutely terrific. People can check out the book, com. How old were you, Courtney, when you realized that your father was either famous or well-known, however you want to describe it? How old were you?
24: <laughs> um, I would say about um, six, seven. We would go to stores or go to the post office or just, you know, run errands. And people would, would point or they come up to him and, and want to have long conversations and ask him about, you know, the stories he's reported and ask him about his politics. And I was just wondering why everyone wanted to talk to my dad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you do, dad? You're just, you're just my dad. Um, and so I would say about Eva's age, actually, in the book, which is about 6, 7, I started to realize that, oh, okay, well, he does something that – makes people want to you know ask him questions and talk to him and i don't know why they are pointing to him on the street but i don't think that's normal so it was around around that age that i realized something was a
2: little different did did having a parent who was a journalist help you avoid any of the rookie mistakes that people generally make when they're starting out in news journalism and are there any specific examples you could think of
24: um i I think it did. But at the same time, you know, my father let me be my own person. Um, He's definitely, you know, my biggest cheerleader um, professionally. He was able to kind of give me a a master's degree, you know, in journalism starting out because I grew up with him. You know, I grew up in the same house and I and I watched him write scripts. I watched him go over and over um, on questions that he would ask people. I watched his his interview techniques. Um, He really cares about, you know, what he does. And he puts in a lot of work and, and into what he does. And my father stays up late into the night since I was a little girl um, doing his work, reading newspapers, sending emails to people. So I got to see that it wasn't just what people see on, the radio and on TV, mm. they see the final product when they listen to you.
2: Mm. But
24: they don't see all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes every day.
2: Well said. And I, I'm sure that's uh, equally true, if not more so, in, uh, in writing a book. I can't recommend the book enough. Uh, its author is Courtney Carter De Jesus. The book is Eva, The Kid Reporter. Check out the website, evathekidreporter.com. Courtney, it's uh, great to talk with you. And uh, good luck with the book. We'll look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight.
0: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Last night, I didn't get to sleep by the Fifth Dimension. Uh, A couple of things. One, if you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, join our Facebook group. We post it there each and every day, 800-848-9222, if you want to jump on board by phone. And um, if you do join that Facebook group, we would actually ask you, if you're able, To pretend that our Facebook group is Senegal. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, Senegal actually has a reputation for being one of the nicest countries in the world to, to strangers. They actually pride themselves on being nice to people and being hospitable to people. What if the people in this Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano, when they interacted with everybody, they said, well, maybe we can make this the Senegal of Facebook groups by being nice to people. Imagine that people joining a group and then and again, and I don't include myself in this. You could say whatever you want about me, but I'm really talking about um, you guys and one another. And being nice to one another. The people of Senegal take so much pride in their reputation for exceptional hospitality. That the name of their national team, and you'll see this in the World Cup, it roughly translates to the Lions of Hospitality. That's their soccer name. Lions of Hospitality. Imagine if we could implement that same philosophy to the world of Facebook. If you want to be a part of the Senegal of Facebook, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Moreno. Uh, Ernie is in Port Chester. He's been patiently holding. Hello, Ernie. Hey, how you doing, I'm well, thanks.
19: Before I say much, there's a uh, website, jfk.org. I don't know if anybody's mentioned that, uh, but it it, it involves the... uh, Secret service men that were in the car behind and has a lot of insights that nobody's brought up, I bet. Um and as far as uh uh Oswald being able to take him out at that distance given all the factors, he could do it.
2: You oh so you think um, he could do it? He could have been the lone gun.
19: Oh yeah. All oh right. yeah.
2: So is that what you think happened? You think Oswald acted alone?
19: Yep. Okay, and uh, and well, not alone because oh, not alone. They, NJFK in JFK org, and this explains some of the cover up. They think it may have been done by a Secret Service agent by accident in a car behind.
2: Well, I mentioned the the accident theory. Uh, Bonner, um, I don't remember the gentleman's name, Bonner something, has popularized that. So yeah, that's out there, Ernie. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing your uh, your insight mm-hmm. and your opinion. Uh, One quick thing I do want to mention. The Associated Press, to their credit, has fired reporter James Laporta. Now, I, I don't like to see anybody lose their job, but I'm pretty happy to see this guy lose his job because it at least shows that the Associated Press cares at least a little bit about accountability. James Laporta, a horrible journalist who cited a single unnamed U.S. intelligence official to inaccurately report that Russian missiles had killed two people in Poland, has been fired. Um, The story for which the AP ultimately published a correction, to their credit, was the subject of a great deal of criticism after it was revealed to be incorrect— this story, and his inaccurate reporting this is not an exaggeration, it almost started a world war. It almost started NATO versus russia um and it got that it was about to heat up that cold War in a hurry and what's so I, what I think you need to keep in mind whether you're seeing Professor Scott Galloway on Face the Nation talking about Elon Musk and Russia and Twitter and how Twitter and the Russians got Trump back and reinstated or whether you see reporter James Laporta citing a single unnamed source to inaccurately report that Russian missiles killed two people in Poland. We are now in a moment where the media and the punditocracy is hysterical. And they're rushing to blame Russia about everything. They're rushing to blame the Russians. The next time you hear something that's groundbreaking, that's unbelievable, like russia fired missiles into poland or that uh, the russians got trump reinstated to twitter ask yourself one does this make sense two what is the evidence of this if the evidence is nothing or a single unnamed source then i think maybe you have to think okay maybe i should think twice about believing this so i'm I, again i hate to see anybody lose their job But I'm glad this reporter has been fired. He literally could have taken us to nuclear war had there not been cooler heads prevailing. So I'm glad that uh, things have worked out a little bit better and uh, that, uh, you know, we didn't rush into anything that we couldn't take back. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the mail in just a moment. That's 800-848-9222. You know what I received yesterday? A giant bag of soybeans because I am going to be making the Ralph Nader lentil soybean soup that I tried to make a couple of weeks ago. So I have lentils. I have soybeans. I have just about all the ingredients. My plan is to make this on Friday. I'm tasked with cooking dinner for uh, my wife and Carmine on Friday. But I have enough soybeans for a lifetime. So does anybody else know of recipes that I could use all these soybeans for? If you do, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, let me tell you something. I hate these speed cameras. Uh, look, and I recognize the importance of them, and I recognize the value that they can play in getting people to slow down. I'm all for it in a school zone. I'm all for it in uh, during school hours. I just find it really irritating, quite frankly, that I have to get zapped $75 if I'm driving 40 miles per hour in an area that that is basically keeping up with traffic, and that's supposed to be 30 miles per hour. But okay, that's me. I recognize that speed cameras and red light cameras are a thing, and I have never tried to obstruct or obscure my license plate. Now, maybe our brethren in New Jersey can't relate to this, but in New York and a whole bunch of other states, speed cameras and red light cameras, well, actually, the New Jerseyans can relate to this because you guys had all this for a while before uh, Assemblyman uh, Declan O'Scanlan, or Senator Declan O'Scanlan, uh, waged jihad and had New Jersey get rid of all these. But these are all over the country, these speed cameras these red light cameras, cameras that observe your vehicle doing something it shouldn't. Maybe it helps solve a hit and run. Maybe it um, forces you to pay a toll. But whatever the case may be, these are only things that can be done if your license plate is not obstructed. So there's this big trend of people getting little stickers that maybe look like a piece of debris or maybe look like a leaf or maybe look like some mud, maybe look like some dirt. And they actually take these stickers and put them on their license plate so that if they're uh, picked up speeding through a speed camera zone or going through a red light camera zone, they don't get the ticket because it can't read one of the digits on their license plate. Now, of course, this is totally illegal, but people are still doing it. You don't if you look at it with the naked eye while you're in traffic, a lot of times you might not even notice that it's a sticker. You might think it's a leaf or a or um a piece of mud or something or a piece of dirt or something. But people are using these stickers. Is that right? Should you be able to use these stickers? I think, obviously, the answer is no. And I I would never do that, even though I've gotten whacked with this speed camera multiple times by now. Here's a trickier question. What happens if you see a vehicle parked that has one of these stickers on their license plate? What can you do? What should you do? What would you do? Matt Blaze, if I am someone who hates the fact that these people are violating the law by having these stickers on their license plate, in your opinion, would I be within my rights to remove the sticker from that license plate?
5: No. Why? It's none of your business.
2: Uh, Kenneth. Because it's their property, technically. It's on their car, so technically you can't... Even though it's totally illegal? Yes. Okay. Well, let me tell you about a lawyer named Adam White. Now, again, I I don't think I would ever be in this position because I'm so oblivious. Unless uh, someone I'm walking with, usually my wife or somebody, points something out to me, I have no idea what's going on. I I just... uh, I, I get so in the zone. I get so in my own head that uh, there can be there could be all sorts of shenanigans going on right in front of me, and I would not observe them. I, I'm maybe the least observant bystander that there is. Forget about it. I mean, um, Vincent Laguardia Gambini would have had a field day cross-examining me if I were the witness to the murder in the uh, sack of Suds. Now, a lawyer named Adam White represents victims of. Traffic violence. So this is his number one issue. He is Mr. Speed Camera. He's Mr. Red Light Camera. He hates these these illegal things. And what he does when he sees these stickers illegally obstructing license plates, he takes them off. That's what he does. So, he was, he saw a car, a Chevy SUV with a piece of plastic, obstructing a single digit on its license plate on 4th Avenue in Brooklyn last Friday. And this is a common yet illegal practice that helps drivers evade traffic cameras, tolls, or flee hit-and-runs. Now, think about that. If you take the Matt Blaze attitude, the Kenneth attitude, somebody commits a hit-and-run and and has one of these things, and they get away with it, Matt Blaze and Kenneth have facilitated them getting away with this hit-and-run. But not Adam White. Adam White takes it upon himself to make sure these vehicles, these license plates are in compliance with the law. Now, Mayor Adams has pledged to crack down on this practice, despite many members of his own administration and even some police officers employing this themselves. So fed up with Adam White, fed up with his own calls to 311 for low-level offenses like placard abuse or parking in the bike lane that have gone nowhere. Um, White said he took matters into his own hands when he sees this Chevy SUV. And he engaged in some admittedly risky citizen vigilanteism. Since he says it was unlikely that any police officer who may have showed up would have done anything. Quote, This is from Adam White. This is what I do for a living. People are getting killed and maimed all over the city, and you can't identify a vehicle. It's undermining all laws, speed cameras. Police don't do anything about it. It's becoming more and more rampant. And with the Kenneths and the Matt Blazes of the world walking around, they're not doing anything about it. So what happened when Adam White comes upon this SUV in Brooklyn? Well, he didn't realize that the driver was still sitting in the SUV. And he starts removing the piece of plastic covering the single letter G in the seven-character plate. The driver jumps out. He threatens to call the police for defacing his property. And White, the attorney, invites him to do so. Adam White said... Dude, you can't cover your plate. It's illegal. He tells the driver whose car was also, had tinted windows and a yellow light on its dashboard. The driver, who Adam White believes may either be a municipal employee or something along those lines, you can check on the website How's My Driving, this driver has racked up 26 violations Since 2019, including six for speeding in school zones. So not long after their verbal altercation, White says a squad car of cops from the 78th precinct pulled up. This is the same station house where some of the police officers have been criticized after botching an investigation into the fatal attack of a dog and his owner in Prospect Park on August 3rd. So the police pull up. The driver accuses Adam White of damaging his license plate. White says he never touched it. He just removed the piece of plastic that concealed the full plate number, correcting what should have been the crime that day. White said it had no value except to obstruct the plate. And then out of nowhere, you will never believe what happens. White said cops started arresting him With metal handcuffs behind his back, the two officers uh, take him to the 75th precinct where he was charged with criminal mischief. He's locked in a six by four foot cell for five hours before being uh, charged with criminal mischief and ordered to appear in court on December 1st. Now, the NYPD declined to answer questions about the case. Uh, but provided the website Streets Blog with a brief narrative that describes the car driver with the def- the defaced plate as the victim. Meanwhile, Adam White says these same officers refused to write the driver a summons for his obstructed plate or his tinted windows. Because they said they didn't observe it. White says he's going to fight to have his ticket dismissed. Quote, they use They use excuses when they don't want to give a ticket. It's par for the course. I'm shocked they arrested me. It's very crazy. I'm going to make the most of it by challenging the system and the ticket and doing what I have to do to draw attention to cops not doing any of this stuff. My question is, what do you think? Do you think this gentleman should have been arrested for criminal mischief? That's question one. Question two is, at the very least, should they also have given this driver who might have been you know, a city worker of some sort, should they also have given him a summons for having this you know, obstructed license plate? 808 that is the question.
0: A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have
2: awaited a question. And one person who wants some answers on this is the city council member from Park Slope, Shahana Hanif, who said this week she is deeply disturbed by what happened to Adam White. And she is demanding some answers from the precinct's commanding officer. Quote, It is shocking how the NYPD continues to prioritize unlawful and reckless car owners While harassing cyclists and pedestrians at every opportunity. Well, first of all, let me say, I don't think the NYPD is doing that. I don't think they're harassing cyclists and pedestrians at every opportunity. Um, She says, we need accountability. Adam is a good Samaritan whose actions to hold a reckless driver accountable left him in handcuffs. This is police misconduct plain and simple. Well, let me say, I don't think it's police misconduct. And if it is police misconduct, I don't think it's plain and simple. But I don't think this guy should have been arrested. If you have to, you give the guy a warning, right? To arrest him and hold him for 5 hours, it sounds like they were busting his chops a little bit. Because, you know, he's he's probably annoying. He's probably a nuisance, and the cops didn't want to be bothered with this guy. That's what I think happened here. I don't think he should have been arrested. At the very least, I think this other driver should have been given a ticket as well because it is frustrating. It seems like all these city workers that have these stickers on their license plate, it seems like there's one set of laws for regular motorists, and then there's one set of laws for everybody, for the kind of the the well-connected. And I don't think that's right either. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with David in Rockaway Park. Hello, David.
9: Hi, how you doing? Good. Thanks. the, The New York City traffic light system is like a huge pinball game, and it has a rhythm to it, except at major crosstown streets where they fire off the red light early, they fire off the camera early. And they catch poor schnooks who do not understand the rhythm.
2: Okay, so I don't know that you necessarily answered my question about uh, what should have happened with Adam White and his arrest.
9: Um, I don't know the particulars on the spot, so uh, anything I would said would
2: just be blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, thank you, David. Uh, I like a little blah, blah, blah once in a while. Uh, much like uh, the climate change, young woman, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, Greta Thunberg. I'm thinking of uh, Miss blah blah blah. Let me say hello to Opetizano in Middletown. That's your first name, Opetizano. No, Petizano is my last name. Opet- Vincenzo is my first name. Ah, okay. Thank you, Vincenzo. What's uh, what's on your mind this morning?
25: Well, uh, number one, uh, he should have gotten a ticket for obstruction of the plate. He should have, the driver. Yes, the driver should have got a ticket. And
4: the lawyer should have mind his business.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you um, on both counts. But this lawyer does not seem like a mind your business type. We all know people like this, right? So the question is, what do you do with somebody like this? Do you think he should have been arrested?
13: The lawyer,
25: uh, yes and no. I'm confused on that. Right. Okay. Because he should not
9: interfere. And the law, I think the law says that, you know, you call the authorities, let them do the job. That's why we have the, the authorities, the police.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Vincenzo. Appreciate it. 800 Jim is in Manhattan. Hello, Jim.
5: Yeah, good morning. You know, I'm thinking that uh, this guy with the uh, obstructed plate, maybe he even worked for the police or he worked for a, a, a local politician. Because you got to really ask yourself, with all the problems in this city that you never see any cops around for, why did so many squad cars and cops show up for such a minor, un, uh, unimportant offense that was not harmful that they're charging this guy White with?
2: Well, that's what White is saying. Is he thinks this guy was some sort of uh, high ranking municipal worker of some some sort, and he was, you know, one of these elites that I'm talking about. Somebody that was juiced in and thought that he had a right to have his plate obstructed.
5: Well, you know, he may not even have thought he had a right to do that. He's just, just, uh, you know, being an an SOB and saying, don't mess with me. You know, maybe he knew he shouldn't have done that, and he doesn't care. He's just pulling power on him. But, again, why did the – you know, what a waste of manpower with all the problems we're hearing about these days with the rising crime and the the definite chaos in the streets, I mean – you know, things like this are bad for the police because uh, with all the protests against them, it verifies what right. some of those protesters right. Saying. Yeah,
2: I mean, what do they need to be demonized by this council member from Park Slope for? Thank you, Jim. You know, this is just like the movie Death Wish with Charles Bronson, which was also very similar to the Bernard Goetz case. I mean, obviously, instead of Death Wish, the Death Wish gunman killing people, picture him taking stickers off of their license plates. Once you make that small little tweak to the plot, this is exactly like the movie Death Wish. And instead of, you know, like a tough guy who uh, is avenging his family, picture a lawyer on a bicycle. Other than that, it's exactly like the movie Death Wish. 800 Let me say hello to Tony in Nanuet. Hello, Tony.
25: Hey Frank, um, yeah, definitely no ticket for the guy. Uh, well, one, who's
2: the guy? Who's the guy?
25: The 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 uh, dro- owner of the car. Got it. Okay, the driver. First of all, right. When the police get there, they obviously it has to be like a uh, they have to observe it. Uh, number one, it's a violation, correct?
7: But so that's my So, if it's a violation,
25: yeah. it has to be in their presence. Now, my opinion about the attorney. He sort of was just standing his ground, and he was more like a civilian vigilante, you know, that was running around trying to make things go his way or make them right or whatever. Uh, He was on his little crusade or something like that and probably gave the cops a hard time. I guarantee you those cops did not want to lock this guy up.
2: Yeah, I think you're probably right on both counts. You know, uh, I think... uh... And look, the police officers involved here, I'm not going to go through their whole disciplinary history, but Streets Blog, which is a very pro-cyclist uh, website, they went through every disciplinary action that the two police officers that locked this guy up have ever had. And what are, like, you know, Officer Adam Phillips, Sergeant Kirk Klenke, what do these two guys need to have incidents from 2007 Reprinted in the paper fifteen years later. For her. of course they don't. So I agree with you. I don't think they wanted to make this a bigger deal. I just think uh, Adam White was probably, as I said, being a little bit, um, a little bit of a, a jerk, to be honest. Uh, but I still don't think they should have arrested him. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tony is in Tampa. This is a, a very Tony full show today. Tony's in okay. Tampa. Hello, Tony. Hi. How you doing? Hi. Right. Great. Good. Yeah, I think if
9: the
11: judge is not a schmuck, he'll just dismiss uh, dismiss the thing with a warning to everybody. Because the, uh, the the problem is the lawyer removed the defect, cured the defect by taking the, the, the evidence. He destroyed the evidence.
25: You right, know? So, right, so well, I he guess can, he
21: can't complain.
2: Fair enough. Well, I guess he can complain about being arrested. Thank you, Tony. 800-848-9222. Angel is in Orange County. Hello, Angel.
25: Hey, Frank. How are you? Doing great, um, thanks. Good, good. So I'm a retired YPD, and uh, I just wanted to know both Tonys are correct. Um, first of all, the driver could not be summoned because the attorney removed the sticker, so it wasn't observed by the police officer. If he, the attorney would have called the police and had them show up there to observe it without him touching it, it would have been a different story. They would have probably given him a summons right there. So that's,
2: if you were advising this guy, Adam White, that's what you would have recommended.
25: Correct. Or call call the police and have, you know, call the station, whatever, time that, uh, and remember, it's a violation, so it doesn't have big priority when other stuff is going on in the city. So nobody's going to be rushing to go to that location for a
2: stick on a plate, you know? That being said, should Adam White have been arrested? So, uh... So it could go either
25: way. Now, you had to have been there. Remember, you're only hearing to one side. So now when you have a complainant and a defendant uh, arguing and stuff, the, the cops are going to want to get them apart, because if they just walk away and leave and then something happens, a uh, physical, it's, it's going to be a problem. So if, being that he caused—well, um, the the driver claims that he damaged his plate, so they're going to take his word for it, if he did, and he's admitting that he did peel something off from his plate. They're going to take him just to get him away from that situation. And, and you know, uh, remember, a summons is in lieu of an arrest. So if somebody's agitated, they're arguing or whatever it is, you don't have to give somebody a summons. You could take him into the precinct, you know? So and, you think uh, maybe that's and, what went on here? These
2: police officers maybe? I, I think so. I, well, that I makes sense. So. I think that's very attorney, reasonable. Yeah. That's very reasonable, yeah, Angel. The attorney
25: was, was agitated. He was getting frustrated because the cops did not want to do anything to the driver. And so they said, you know what, let's take him away because there's going to become a problem where this driver not to be physical against them or vice versa.
2: Gotcha. Hey, thank you, Angel. Great call. Obviously, none of us were there. So we're in some ways in a very difficult position to make judgments about an incident that we didn't witness. But I think the fundamentals of the incident we can make judgments about. You have a citizen vigilante. A Bernard Getz, a Curtis Sleewa, who is taking it upon himself to keep pedestrians and cyclists who are being maimed by these speeding drivers safe. And he's taking it upon himself to make these drivers comply with the law by removing these illegal sticker obstructions, which apparently are very prevalent in the Adams administration and among a lot of city workers. And then he gets arrested, kept in a cell for five hours. I I do think, as uh, two of the previous callers, I'm betting at least one of them was named Tony, said that this Adam White ticket certainly gets dismissed. Everything gets dismissed now. Now that there's been some media attention on this case, I think that will probably be the case. All right, we have a first timer. We're
13: sorry.
2: Tim is in Buffalo. Tim, how'd you make out with the snow up there?
25: Oh, uh, I got about three feet, but about 40 miles north, that's uh, 77 inches.
2: 77 inches. Wow. Yeah. Do you have a snowblower?
25: I don't. I uh, have a neighbor with a tractor and a plow.
2: Oh, that's the best way to do Does he help you out? He, he does your... Oh, all, yeah, all the time. All right. Well, good. I like that. All right. What's on your mind uh, this morning, Tim? See, my thought would be if
25: they didn't see him remove the sticker... Unless, of course, he was being adamant, yes, I did, yes, I did. Um, I would have just walked him around the corner and said, you know, you got to cool off and go uh, instead of arresting him for that because they didn't see him do that either.
2: Tim, you know what? I am shocked that nobody has said what you just said because, you know, obviously I've never been a police officer and, you know, I don't have the training of a police officer. But I'd like to think if I was a police officer, that's exactly what I would have done Uh, because they didn't witness it. Right. You're dealing with a hysterical driver who's whining. You're dealing with a hysterical cyclist who's whining. And um, to your point, the police are saying they can't give the guy the ticket because they didn't see the obstruction on the license plate. But what you just said is accurate, right? They they didn't see him touch the license plate either. So why wouldn't exactly. they just say a pox on both your houses, be nice to each other, and um, you know, and walk the guy around the corner? I, I think that your solution, I think, is the most reasonable. Well, I appreciate that. All right, Tim. Hey, uh, good luck with all that snow up there.
25: All right. Listen to you every morning up here on AM uh, 77. It's, uh, it comes across clear as day.
2: Love hearing that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. All
25: right. Take,
2: take care. 800 848 Paul is on Long Island. Hello, Paul.
25: Hey, how are
2: you? I'm doing uh, pretty well, I think.
25: Excellent, excellent. Well, I, hey, uh, Paul, I'm going to put you back you. on hold
2: because your phone is screwed up. So if you can get to a better area or something, I'll be happy to talk with you. Gene is in Queens. Hello, Gene.
25: How are you? How are you doing? Make First of all, the other guy's right. A summons is in lieu of an arrest. Mm-hmm. second point is the cop has to witness a violation before he can write a ticket. All he right, cannot not so, write a ticket unless he unless he sees the violation committed.
2: So in your view, the, the police thing, acted I appropriately. I would took the guy
15: around the block and cut him loose, too. But
25: the the other thing is the guy admitted he did it. Right. So, so that's the... That's the reason for the arrest. He let he he told the cops he did it. Not like the cops had it be. He admitted he did it. Are you a cop, uh, Gene? Uh, yeah, I'm a former cop. Former cop, okay. So, um... I'm also a friend of Vincenzo who voiced his opinion earlier. I oh, great. Vincenzo.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I was sorry that, um, that Kenneth didn't put up his, uh, his first name. We kind of got off on the wrong foot. But, um, if you were in this position, given the set of circumstances that you know, and again, obviously none of us were there, but given what we're hearing about this situation, how would you have handled it? Would you have arrested this guy?
25: Well, you... I probably wouldn't have arrested the guy because I like to talk to people and let them, you know, and right. let them know like they're not doing the right thing. Right. He's, what he should have done was he should have called the police and pointed out the violation on the guy's car, and the guy would have got a ticket right away. It, but and and he would not have got arrested for it, you know, because he's just, you know, just voicing his opinion out to the police
2: officer. Now think of it from his perspective, though. Right? He's saying. That he makes a lot of three one one calls um, and nothing ever gets done. He still sees these stickers.
25: Well, go on hey, I'm sorry.
2: No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, so he's saying he's tried to call so, and there's the 3-1-1 no. The three
25: one one system takes a long time.
2: Right, but it's not the kind of thing you should be calling nine one one for, right? I mean, nine one one's for emergencies.
15: No, you're exactly, you're exactly right. You know, sometimes you get lucky and the cops show
25: up right away on the three one one call. If they're not busy.
2: So from his perspective, he's sort of taken the law into his own hands as a vigilante. If you're him and you're... It's wrong
25: touching somebody else's property, no matter what. No matter what. No matter how illegal it is.
2: No matter what, you can't do it. No matter what. All right. Gene in Queens has spoken. That's it. Uh, 800-848-9222. Let me squeeze in one more, and then we're going to try and do the $1,000 minute. And then if anybody wants to hold, you can... Robert is in Rockland. Hello, Robert. Good morning,
25: sir. How you doing? Uh, in my personal opinion, if people want to do this in the future, take a picture or a video of the plate. If the police are called, you can show them physical evidence of the obstruction of the
2: license plate. Well, do he not did, touch the other he, guy's car. He did take photos. Of the obstruction, and then once he removed the obstruction, ah, oh, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have touched the car at all. He should have just called the police, showed them the photographs. Look,
25: here's the car, because by touching the vehicle, and the police not being there to physically see it, they, um, I wouldn't have arrested him either. I would have. Put them around the corner or told them get in your car and leave. Well, or bicycle. And we'll talk to the other driver. Right.
2: Yeah. Well b- bicycle. But right. yeah. favoritism was played here by the police, in my opinion. And meaning they were favoring the driver over the bicyclist. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Robert, thank you. Um I'm very interested to see where this case goes. I I'm sure it will be a dismissal, but I think it's gonna be an interesting road. From now till whenever I said the hearing is December 1st, it's going to be very interesting because this guy, Adam White, is going to use this to bring as much attention to this as possible. And uh, this guy, this driver, may have won the battle, but he may have hurt the cause of all drivers that have these obstruction things because I think it's forcing Adams to to do what he said he was going to do and crack down on these obstructed license plates and crack down on placard abuse. We'll see what happens. All right. Those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, you're welcome to. Uh, but if you would like to be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. Be the seventh caller now, and you'll get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do it, you will be $1,000 richer. Go ahead and call now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is one, two, three, red light by the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. All right, without further ado, it is time for us to.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win
9: $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano.
2: Let us say, let a buddy in Mayo Pack. Hello, buddy.
19: Hey, Frank, how are you?
2: I'm great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. Okay. All right, you ready to go? We'll do the show. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right, you know the rules, I assume, right?
0: Yes. Okay, yes.
2: let's get started. Who. Who pardoned two turkeys at the White House yesterday? Joe Biden. What New York City department store sponsors the Thanksgiving Day Parade? Macy's. What professional sport is always played on Thanksgiving?
19: NFL football.
2: What was the first state?
13: Uh, Virginia.
2: Ah, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it was the state of Delaware. Delaware, is, well, you're doing well, buddy, there. you We've got a good pace. Made it up to question four, but did it quickly. Uh, give buddy a consolation prize if we can. Um, Delaware was the first state. Uh, so uh, first of the original 13. So that's, that's what their official state nickname is. The first state. And now they, uh, they've given us Joe Biden. So they've certainly done their part. Have they not? All right. Uh, without further ado uh, let us give you an opportunity to um you know be heard through the written word This is from Mark in South Jersey. Good morning, Frank. I asked once before, but you never answered. Where does the sound bite that you play for question come from? All right. Well, I usually like a little mystery to where all these sound effects come from, but uh, I'll let you in on that. That is from the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. That is the guardian of forever. Uh, I got an SMS text message here from a listener. And if you want to text me, you can, 8168 Moreno. The text message says, White, meaning the lawyer we were just talking about. White is a hero. He would have been more of a hero if he bashed in the taillights of the SUV. I hate jerks who cover their plates. I'm not sure that he is a hero, but uh, I'm not sure he's a villain either. All right, uh, this is from a gentleman named Mike. Hello, Frank. I have been a loyal listener since almost day one. I must admit, I was somewhat skeptical at first, but after a week, I knew this was going to be good radio. I'm seldom disappointed. Not always perfect, but then what is? What bothers me is some of your regular callers. They call Curtis over the weekend and bash you quite severely. (laughs) I get the shtick between you and Curtis... It's entertaining, but those callers who you entertain with regularity can't wait to toss you under the bus. Then they call you and sing your praises, tell you how wonderful the show is. It's just not right. This bothers me. They, who, they know who they are, and I'm sure you do as well. You're too nice of a guy to call them out. Uh, an excellent first birthday for Carmine and a splendid Thanksgiving for you as well. Thanks for always great radio, mostly, uh, Mike. Um, let me say... I am not bothered at all at any of these callers bashing me either on this show or on any other show, right? I think you need to understand what I do, what Curtis does, it's entertainment. And by putting a caller on, we're not hooking them up to a lie detector. We're not expecting them to recite the Talmud accurately. When a caller calls a radio show, the only thing they are is a tool. They're a tool to help me entertain you, the listener. That's it. And so if it involves making fun of me and yucking it up with Curtis, that's great. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. So nobody should be bothered by that. Yo, chill out. This is from um, Aldo. Um, oh, this is a long email, so I'm just going to go brief through this. Hey, Frank, I've emailed you a before on occasion. Together with my spouse of 48 years, congratulations. We were early and we wake early and put you on the radio. We listen to the radio not exclusively, but mostly throughout the day, including the weekends. My wife particularly likes the $1,000 trivia segment. Maybe one day we will call to take a shot at it. We intend to catch your podcast of today's show because we only caught a portion of the one fellow who called, who fell asleep in his car, and awoke to a lady being in his car. He presented an idea that we failed to catch, but you commented on how much you like the idea. So the idea was essentially direct democracy, allowing people to vote um, through their smartphones on issue after issue so that you don't have to rely on politicians to make these sort of uh, decisions about important things that affect you. This is an email from Maxine. Good morning, Frank. Wishing you, Rachel and Carmine, a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy. I listened to you speaking this morning about social media and specifically Facebook. It is amazing how emboldened and entitled people become when firing away at their keyboard slash keypad. She's right. They make comments and confront others where they would never do so otherwise, such as off social media. You're a class act and an excellent radio host. Always interesting. See that? Um, Who's that fellow that emailed me before? Mike? Always interesting. Not mostly interesting. Always interesting, informative, and funny, and of course very intelligent. Happy holidays, Maxine. She also included a photo of a, a, a dog to show Carmine, which was very, very nice. All right, this is. Um, oh, this is from Elizabeth. If your life story was a musical, <laughs> oh, I wish I had given this more thought. What would the title be? Who would play you and who would you write, want to write the soundtrack? Okay. Uh so look, I think the the best person to play me because he's just the greatest performer of all time is William Shatner. That's number 1. Number 2, um I would like uh maybe Lin Manuel Miranda to write the uh write the soundtrack. What would it be called? Uh, you know, I know this is kind of a lame answer. And I wish I had more time to think about it, but it would be called The Other Side of Midnight, I think. I think that's what it would be called. All right. um, Michelle writes, subject, beam me up. She writes, I just tuned into your show after not listening for a while. Still lame as ever. What's up with the beam me up? So goofy. Damn. (laughs) I wish you would have better content. Uh, Upside, uh, frown face, the frown emoticon." Uh, Jeff writes on the subject of transitioning. Frank, you said Carmine is transitioning from bottle to sippy cup. Given today's definition, please use a different word than transitioning in the future. I think everyone would agree that Carmine is a bit young to be transitioning. That's from Jeff. Thank you. I, I uh, hope I didn't offend anybody by the usage of uh, of that word. All right. Um and here, let me squeeze in one more here. Peter writes, Frank, long-time listener, never called. How might this work? Like most ideas, it came out of the blue. Prize, colon. I like this guy, Peter. He, he's got good um, sentence structure. I like the way he uses capitals. I like the way he uses bold letters. So you could tell when someone puts a lot of effort into a letter or an email um, prize, a night slash morning with Frank Morano. No, nothing Rachel would object to uh, at this point. I think Rachel would be content to have somebody take uh, me off her hands for a morning or a night. Winner would enjoy a morning with you during your program, not in studio. That may be against company protocol, but just outside so that he or she could watch you in action. The unknown is, what does the winner have to do to earn that prize? What criteria could be developed that would merit such an award? This is something you might ask your audience. Create a contest such that the winning prize is a night slash morning with Frank Moreno. And the bonus, you take the winner to breakfast. Well, this is uh, is some prize. It's already costing me money here. Uh, Personally, I would be delighted to assist in developing plans for this endeavor. And uh, careful consideration must be given to eligibility, criteria, controls and rules for judging whatever entries are received. I think this could be very interesting and appealing. The idea may need more study. Think about it. Let's see how creative your audience can be. Alternative is your staff creates the contest and pitches it to your audience. That way, You would have all the controls. Well, that is a pretty interesting idea, Peter. You know what I thought? I am so sick of... I don't want to say I'm sick of it because I actually get some good ideas from you guys. I am so tired of people saying, you know, you should have this person on. You should have that person on. And all I've been thinking is, all right, well, let let me dial five and get uh, uh, Donald Trump on or, or uh, Tucker Carlson. These are people that are tough to get. And yet these folks that say you should have this person on or that person on, they very rarely do anything to help get that person on. Um, so maybe we can do a contest where we assign points for um, target you know, guests, and whoever can get up to 100 points... Like maybe if you could get Joe Biden on the show, that's ninety points. If You get Trump on the show, that's ninety points. But if you can get, um, I don't know, who else would would be interesting? You can get uh, Kanye West, maybe that's forty points, right? You get OJ, maybe that's thirty points, right? Um, but um, I, um, you know, I think that uh, I think that might be fun, actually. I think maybe we could do something with that. But it's a good idea. If you have thoughts, you can email me. Also, uh, if you want to send me a letter. You can do so at P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Just send it to my attention. Frank Moreno, that's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. I want to thank Irene in Central Jersey. She sent Carmine a nice birthday card, um, which he really appreciated, and a little gift in there for Carmine, so I'm going to send her a thank you. Got a nice uh, card from uh, Gary Korb as well, and I think... Uh, Ellen Metzger sent um, a card as well, but I didn't have a chance to, to look at that yet, but I did open Irene's card. That was very nice. Um, so, again, our snail mail address, P.O. Box, 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Attention, Frank Morano. And if you ever want to email me, frank.morano at wabc, uh, wabcradio.com. Last email I'll read, and then we'll move on and let you start queuing up for the $1,000 minute, eight hundred eight four eight, 848 And not uh, 15 seconds of fame. I got it. I got it. Relaxed. That that we're on top of. I say something wrong.
5: We're on Keep top you on of. track.
2: It takes me forty five seconds to get a soundbite played and uh the, the, heaven forbid I throw to the tease the wrong segment after uh, Blah blah
22: blah 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 four blah. hours
2: of radio. Um yeah, if you want to start queuing up for that, it's uh 848 Uh Bob from Annapolis writes, uh photograph both front and back plates. Was the tape on both front and back? Melatonin is the last resort, maybe once in a long while. Don't mess with hormones. He uh, mentioned some other radio personality. Uh, some other radio personality had several different guests about Kennedy the past several years. All right, well, I hope you'll reach out to that radio personality and tell them about all the guests we've had over the last several years. Thank you, Bob, for letting us know what other people are doing. All right, that concludes this edition of... for this terrific song, The Other Side of Midnight. I still have to listen to his Thanksgiving song. Uh, Today's going to be a bit of a crazy day. I'm not sure I'll get to it today, but maybe tomorrow. Hopefully, certainly before Thanksgiving. Uh, A couple of quick things. One, a couple of people have been emailing me about this forthcoming uh, Godfather screening that um, Ed from the 33 football pool is... uh, going to be hosting in New Jersey. Um, Marlena Schiavo is probably going to be there. My friend Danielle, who only has one kidney, she's going to be there. Matt Blaze is going to be there. I think Alex Barnard is going to be there. And uh, I think my wife Rachel and I are going to be there. But people are starting to email me about going. I'm not sure how much space Ed has. We saw the photo of this theater. It only looks like there's 10 or 11. But maybe we'll do a contest to see who gets to have one of these chairs at the screening. Or maybe we'll find a bigger venue, because it would be fun to do a a thing with maybe 20 or 30 listeners, and then maybe do a little talk afterwards. We've done stuff like that before that would be fun. All right. Also, this is just breaking a couple hours ago. Kanye West, rapper-turned-fashion icon, turned Kim Kardashian's husband, turned presidential candidate, Turned virulent anti-Semite. Said he is planning. This is not a joke. Said he is planning a 2024 presidential run, and he has already tapped far-right provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos in a video, which was posted to Twitter on Sunday.
17: Welcome to the office. It's Milo right here.
2: How you doing, Milo? go on the
17: campaign. Oh, right on. Is that an announcement? (laughs) I guess it is. Thanks, I accept.
4: I'm running.
1: Yes. That's awesome, Kain. Simple. (laughs) Simple as that.
2: So there you have it. So this video in which Kanye West, uh, or Ye excuse me, says Yiannopoulos is working on his campaign, comes as the rapper's Twitter account, much like Donald Trump was restored. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, trucking one up to free speech there, was restored, and after he was banned from the uh, the app initially in the wake of his vile anti-Semitic remarks, and uh, Kanye says he's running for president in 2024, and Milo Yiannopoulos, who was recently an intern for Marjorie Taylor Greene is working on the campaign. Is that an announcement? As they both laugh, I guess it is. There you have it. So, uh Kanye West is running in 2024 for president. I have to say his 2020 presidential campaign was not that impressive, and I I I have to think that these remarks that he's making about Jews hurts his 2024 campaign. I mean, it's a sad commentary. On the state of affairs in America, if his anti-Semitic remarks help his presidential candidacy in 2024, I will not be voting for him. I'll tell you that. Um, you know, wouldn't it be something if he picks if he finds the most Jewish person that he could find as his running mate? Wouldn't that be something? And he, he, he picks Rabbi Yehuda Levine. And they go all over the country, and it's Kanye, and uh, clearly an observant, orthodox rabbi with him. See, that is, that is something I would like to see, right? It's part of the Kanye re-education tour. Without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds at 800-848-9222.
0: The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. fame. Jimmy! A moron,
2: a moron, a moron, a- Eloise.
19: Yes, Eloise. Uh, uh, soybeans, you, you asked for soybeans. There's a book called Back to Eden by Jeff Cross, Lotus Press. You
24: can buy, you can get recipes in that book. Copyright originally 1939. Back to
2: Eden, E-D-E-N? Yes. Thank you. I will check it out. Roger.
25: Yeah. Any of our listeners whose employers require random drug testing every now and then, we should be careful as you're walking down the street of uh, secondhand marijuana smoke or in some enclosed place with secondhand marijuana smoke. Rick. Good morning. Two things. You try to get
9: Patty Duke as a guest on your show, and you remind me of Quincy Magoo, Mr.
2: Magoo. Thank you. And finally, Joe.
7: Yes.
25: I have four cousins up in Buffalo. None of their solar panels are working, Frank. <laughs> the
2: system ain't going to work. Hey, thank you, Joe. Hey, I'll be back tomorrow. we got a lot of guests for tomorrow. And uh, General Thomas McInerney, David Stockman, Dr. Sky, and more. Frank Moreno, good day.